Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Today's hearing is a third in a series of hearings we are holding to evaluate the nuclear agreement reached between Iran and the six major world powers. We have heard from the administration and from private witnesses about evaluating the agreement as a whole. Today's hearing gives us an opportunity to look closely at one of the key aspects of the agreement, sanctions relief. Next week, we'll have an opportunity to hear from experts on the nuclear aspects of the deal, but today we have two well-respected experts on sanctions. We thank you both for being here. It's worth noting that real questions about sanctions relief remain. On the same day, the UN passed the resolution endorsing the deal and setting up the snapback mechanism. Iran wrote a letter to the UN saying that they would treat use of the snapback as grounds to walk out of the agreement. Again, uh, I think you all know this passed in about 90 seconds at the UN uh, last Monday, and, and at that moment, Iran sent a letter uh, refuting uh, the ability to use uh, snapback. That same letter outlines that extension of current sanctions would be in, the, in violation of the agreement. Uh, I know we had an exchange the other day where it was asked if we, uh, we have some sanctions that are rolling off in 2016, if we just extended those so there'd be something to snap back to. I know Senator Menendez has made a strong point about this, then that itself uh, would be a violation. And that Iran would reconsider any imposition of new sanctions uh, with a nature and scope identical or similar to those that were in place prior to the implementation date, irrespective of whether new sanctions are introduced on nuclear-rated or other grounds. We have a number of very powerful sanctions that are being alleviated. Most of us have felt that if for some other reason Iran was out of order, we could reapply those sanctions against terrorism, human rights, other activities. Um, I think there's a major debate over where that could, could happen. As a matter of fact, Ron, Iran has said that it could. Now, I'll also say that our partners in the West uh, very strongly told me the same thing. Uh, recently, they've been backing off of that a little bit, so I don't know exactly uh, where that stands. Those, those statements, the agreement itself, and the lack of clarity from our administration have left senators with unresolved questions. Those, in those include questions about the efficacy of U.S. secondary sanctions if Congress disapproves a deal, a very important factor for us to be considering. There are also remaining questions about whether or not the U.S. can reimpose sanctions lifted in the agreement should we need to use them for terrorism purposes. Although I'm very honestly surprised to say, uh, but there are remaining questions about whether or not extending the Iran Sanctions Act uh, would constitute a violation of the agreement, as I mentioned earlier. I see no reason why simply extending existing authority which could be waived would be in violation of the agreement, but Secretary Liu and the Iranians seem to think otherwise. I hope our witnesses will address these questions as well as expand on what you might see as a current climate for doing business in Iran. Both of you have spent time with the companies affected by these sanctions, and if you could, I would appreciate hearing any valuable takeaways. It's important to note that the sanctions this Congress put in place are responsible for bringing Iran to the negotiating table. In exchange for a sus suspension of virtually all of our economic leverage, Iran will over time get to develop an industrial scale, internationally legitimate nuclear program. While this agreement is not intended to address terrorism, many of us worry that the agreement will prevent the U.S. from using economic tools to counter Iranian regional aggression. 
Our witnesses have extensive experience in both economic coercion and combating terrorism. I'd appreciate your perspective on how this agreement could affect our ability to use sanctions in response to terrorism. Secretary Kerry said last week we're free to adopt additional sanctions as long as they're, they're not a phony excuse for just taking the whole pot of past ones and putting them back. I worry that Iran will not agree with our definition of phony and that through this agreement the administration could inadvertently be hampering its own ability to combat Iranian terrorism. In September, we will have the opportunity to vote to approve or disapprove of the agreement. At its core, that choice is whether or not this agreement merits Congress voting to lift those sanctions. Thank you very much for appearing before our committee. I turn to our distinguished ranking member for his comments and look forward to a very good hearing. Well, Mr. Chairman, uh, thank you for uh, arranging the, this hearing, the deal with the sanction aspects of the joint JCPOA, and I thank both of our witnesses, uh, two experts in this area, for sharing their thoughts and engaging our committee in a discussion so that we can better understand the impact uh, of the JCPOA as it relates uh, to, to sanctions. Uh, yesterday we had, I thought, a very helpful hearing uh, that dealt with the overall effects of the uh, agreement. Uh, I think we spent a good deal of time looking at the alternatives. If we do not, uh, if Congress effectively rejects the JCPOA, uh, what would be the consequences? And in that discussion, we did talk about sanctions. So I'm sure we'll get back to the same impact today. But I think today we really want to concentrate on the sanction aspects of the uh, agreement. Ultimately, the members of this committee, the members of the United States Senate and Congress are going to make a decision whether the benefits are of the agreement outweigh the risks or whether the risks of the agreement outweigh the benefits to prevent Iran from ever becoming a nuclear weapon state. That's our test. And the sanctions have a major impact on our evaluation of, of those issues. Uh, let me. Um, first deal with an issue that has, I've raised since day one uh, that uh, the chairman raised again uh, in his opening comments, and I, I hope that we'll get your views on this. And that is, uh, it has been stated very clearly by this administration that we are not taking off sanctions as it relates to uh, terrorism and human rights and, and their missile program. It's also been stated, and I ask the direct question, at the hearing last Thursday, if we have credible information that Iran has violated our policies on terrorism, can we reimpose sanctions on the specific organizations that received relief under the JCPOA or the economic sectors that were affected, such as the crude oil sales by Iran? Could we reimpose those types of sanctions? And Secretary Liu, said fairly directly, the answer is yes, depending on the circumstances, if we can demonstrate, in fact, that it's related to terrorism. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I, I asked similar questions to the representatives of Europe that were here this week, because we know that it's going to require, ultimately, five of the eight votes in the commission that oversights this. Uh, and their response was pretty similar to what Secretary Liu said. In all fairness, I'm just relating with what they said to me. But I am tempered by the language of the JCPOA. After all, that's what we agreed to. I've said frequently, I'm more interested in what's in the JCPOA than what the Iranians say about what's in the JCPOA, or for that matter, our own administration's 
words, because we're bound by the language in the JCPOA if we go forward with it. And it says the EU, uh, it says in Section 29, the EU and its member states, the United States, consistent with their respective laws, will refrain from any policy specifically intended to directly and adversely affect the normalization of trade and economic relations with Iran. And then it says in paragraph 30 that the E3, EU plus 3 will not apply sanctions or restrictive measures to persons or entities for engaging in activities covered by the lifting of sanctions provided for in this JCPOA. So, and then there's some qualifications in the JCPOA. I'm not suggesting that. So what, what I would hope that we'll get into a discussion today, would we be out of compliance with the JCPOA if we reimpose sanctions for non-nuclear activities of entities or economic activities that were relieved from sanctions under the JCPOA. And secondly, what type of pressure would there be on the United States if we wanted to go forward? Uh, would there be international pressure for us not to be as aggressive as perhaps the Congress or the administration wants to be? And we were told yesterday by both of our witnesses that we should be very aggressive in holding Iran to high standards if this agreement goes forward, what type of pressure would there be on us effectively being able to uh, impose the type of sanctions to prevent Iran from the, their non-nuclear uh, various activities? Uh, that's one set of questions I hope we can get into today. The second is, uh, how effective would snapback sanctions be after they're lifted? and during that period of time before they're repealed, if, the, um, uh, the, if any of the, the negotiating partners uh, felt that there was a material breach and takes it to the point of snapping back all or part of the uh, uh, sanctions that were re re uh, relieved under the UN, EU, and or the United States, how effective and how quickly can we reimpose sanctions uh, that will require Iran to rethink its behavior? And I'd be interested in, in, in your views uh, in, in that regard. And, and, and then the, the last point I, I would like to um, have you respond to, and that is if, if we do not uh, approve the agreement, if we reject it, and the United States sanctions remain in place, how effective will those sanctions be if we do not have the support of the international community to cooperate with us in a sanction regime? I think these are important questions for uh, the members of the Congress to understand, and I just look forward to our discussion today. Yeah. Um, and before I introduce, I do want to say that, again, I think when I met with, I know when I met with our Western partners, they were very explicit in agreeing with Iran uh, they did get back with us uh, since that time, and I sense there may have been some reach out from the administration, but they moderated their views much in line with what uh, you may be saying. I'll, I want to also say the chairman and I, the ranking member and I, asked Mr. Amano to testify before us today, uh, this week, next week, uh, just so we could get an understanding of the IAEA issues that we've been concerned about and whether we did that in a classified setting or someplace else, and we've been turned down. So I do want to make people aware of that. Obviously, there are a lot of concerns about the agreement that we haven't seen, 
What we do know about it, I think we all know, is uh, at best very questionable. So I'm sorry to say that we're not going to have the benefit of their testimony to help clear up some of the concerns that we have. So with that, um, we have two outstanding witnesses today that will be very helpful. Our first witness is Honorable uh, Juan C. Cerati, Chairman of the Financial Integrity Network and Chairman of the Center on Sanctions and Illicit Finance at the Foundation for Defense of Demo Democracies. Mr. Zerati uh, previously served as Deputy Assistant to the President and Deputy National Security Advisor for Combating Terrorism. In addition, Mr. Zerati was the first ever Assistant Secretary of the Treasury for Terrorist Financing and Financial Crime. So you haven't been very successful in that regard, but we, just kidding you, thank you. Um, our second witness today is Mr. Richard Nephew, Program Director for the Economic Statecraft, Sanctions, and Energy Markets at the Center for Global Energy Policy. Previously, Mr. Nephew served as Principal Deputy Coordinator for Sanctions Policy at the Department of State and the lead sanctions expert for the U.S. team negotiating with Iran. He has also served as a director for Iran on the National Security Staff. Um, thank you both for being here. We're excited about you being here, if you would. Uh, sort of abbreviate your comments. You're going to have lots of questions. Your written testimony without uh, any opposition will be made part of the record. Thank you both. You can start in whichever order you wish. Please, the Honorable. <laughs> Thanks, Richard. Uh, Mr. Chairman, thank you very much for that kind introduction. Uh, Ranking Member Cardin, uh, distinguished members of this uh, distinguished committee, thank you for this privilege and opportunity to speak to you about the sanctions implications of the JCPOA. Uh, I'm honored, privileged, so thank you very much. I'm also um, grateful to be here next to Mr. Richard Nephew. I'm going to pass all the difficult questions to him. But I do want to thank him, in, in all honesty, for his service to the U.S. government, uh, to the State Department, and on the issues related to sanctions. I take this responsibility before you today incredibly seriously, given the gravity and implications of this agreement. Um, I appreciate the questions you've already posed, which are, which are nuanced and important. I'm happy to answer any others that you, you pose. But I come to this issue with views born from relevant experience dealing with Iran from both the Treasury Department and the National Security Council. I know that all involved have been working incredibly hard toward a peaceful solution to the Iranian nuclear program through painstaking strategies of coercion, sanctions, and diplomacy. Indeed, the financial and economic constriction campaign, built methodically over the course of a decade, helped bring Iran to the table. In the words of President Rouhani, the sanctions threatened to drive Iran back into the Stone Age. These efforts have also been designed to constrain and isolate rogue Iranian behavior, its support to terrorism, the Assad regime, proliferation, human rights abuses, and other dangerous activity as well as to protect the integrity of the U.S. and international financial systems. I will, based on your uh, invitation, focus my testimony on the sanctions relief framework in the JCPOA. Mr. Chairman, I will tell you the framework in the JCPOA is flawed. The relief is too front-loaded. It does not account for the increased risks stemming from Iranian commercial and financial activity. And the JCPOA, as you've alluded to, broadly constrains the U.S. government's ability to use effective financial power against Iranian non-nuclear national security risks. There are structural problems in the JCPOA that undermine the ability of the U.S. to use these powers to affect Iranian behavior. The snapback framework itself proves problematic and is a blunt instrument. It will only be applied if the most egregious violations can be proven openly and convincingly to all parties. 
if new contracts signed or grandfathered, as is suggested in some of the text of the UN resolution and discussions around the JCPOA, the SNAP Act loses its real-world effect to ensure compliance. Instead, it has the potential to create a gold rush incentive for commercial actors to get into the Iranian market quickly. The Iranians maintain a heckler's veto on any reimposition of nuclear sanctions and can simply walk away from the agreement. With the appellate processes, any U.S. sanction or related action to which Iran objects would be subject to review by the other parties, including Iran, China, Russia, creating a whole new paradigm for how the U.S. Uh, reviews and uh, issues its sanctions. The JCPOA unwinds sanctions bluntly, encompassing issues of proliferation and weaponization without addressing the underlying conduct. This creates real risks, and it does damage to the ability to use the very same tools against Iranian individuals and entities in the future. This proves highly problematic with the delisting of Iranian banks, for example, uh, Bank SEPA, the Central Bank of, of Iran, and transport companies like Arisal, which have been used not just to facilitate the nuclear program, but also for proliferation and sanctions evasion. Though non-nuclear sanctions were supposedly off the table, the spirit and letter of the agreement may actually neuter U.S. ability to leverage one of its most powerful tools. The normalization of economic relations with Iran, which is embedded in paragraph 29 of the preface to JCPOA, and also further ensconced in the new U.N. Security Council resolution, does grave damage to that ability and to those powers. Mr. Chairman, from the start of negotiations, as you know, what the Iranians wanted most was the ability to do business again, unfettered and plugged back into the global financial and commercial system. With a commitment to the reintegration of the Iranian economy on the back of the nuclear deal, the administration effectively put all sanctions on the table. To understand this, one needs to appreciate why these financial and commercial measures were so effective in the first instance. These were not the sanctions of old. The financial constriction campaign, which began against Iran in 2005, has proven effective over the past decade, not because Iran was hermetically sealed with naval blockades or classic trade embargoes, but because it was unplugged from the elements of the global financial and commercial order. The regime has needed access to banking, shipping, insurance, new technologies, and connectivity to the oil and global uh, economic markets to maintain and sustain the regime. That is what they lost over the past decade. That appears to be what they have gained and guaranteed in this deal. Now, Mr. Chairman, in addition, the United States will need to amplify its use of financial measures aggressively against key elements of the Iranian economy to deal with increased risks based not just on this deal, but also Iranian foreign policy. It's not at all clear to me that this is well understood by all parties or part of our strategy. The risks from Iran are real and will increase. Iran will get a massive infusion of capital from initial sanctions relief, with some of the estimates up to $150 billion. No doubt some of this will go to support terrorist and militant groups from the Golan to Yemen. With the allowance for an Iranian nuclear program, the deal will likely increase, not decrease, the risk of proliferation. The regime will use its control of the economy not only to further enrich itself,
but to suppress internal opposition brutally and ensconce its rule. The concerns over human rights abuses and regime kleptocracy will grow. And the reality and risks of Iranian sanctions evasion, money laundering, and other financial crimes will increase, not decrease, over time. The United States, therefore, will need to use the same types of financial strategies and campaigns to isolate rogue Iranian activity, which will necessarily affect the trade, commerce, and economy of Iran. Now, Mr. Chairman, I think there are three critical principles for Congress to demand related to sanctions and the JCPOA. Congress, I think, should ensure there is clarity in the JCPOA and in the execution of any sanctions unwinding plan or framework. It should ensure that the United States maintains as much financial and economic power and leverage as possible. Congress should as well mitigate the risks attendant to an enriched and emboldened regime in Tehran. These principles then could help inform the, the basis of a new strategy to address the real and dangerous risks stemming from Iran. The U.S. should adopt a financial constriction campaign focusing on the IRGC, Quds Force, and core elements of the regime that engage in terrorist financing, proliferation of weapons and nuclear technology, and support to militias. This could include the use of secondary sanctions. There should be a recommitment to the elements of a non-proliferation regime and a dedicated strategy focusing on the proliferation risks attendant to any deal with Iran. This would include tighter export control enforcement, interdictions, and financial restrictions tied to suspect Iranian actors and activities, including Iranian banks. The elements of the Patriot Act Section 311 action against Iran and the Central Bank of Iran should be reiterated and reinforced with a designation of primary money laundering concern against the class of transactions involving any Iranian bank. This, Mr. Chairman, could be amplified with a program, perhaps led by the European Union, to create a monitoring system through SWIFT, the bank messaging system, akin to what we built in the terrorist financing tracking program to track and analyze suspect Iranian banking transactions. Mr. Cardin, the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability Act could be used expansively to target the finances and holdings of the Iranian regime and those involved in gross human rights violations on its behalf. Senator, I know this is of uh, deep concern and issue, an issue for you. Mr. Chairman, these are just some of the measures that could be taken to confront the risks from Iran. But of course, undertaking these types of steps in whatever form will likely be seen by diplomats from whatever country as interfering with the JCPOA or any deal for that matter. Instead, they should be seen as necessary steps to enable any nuclear deal, temper market enthusiasm for doing business with a dangerous regime and jurisdiction, and preserve, importantly, a key element of America's power and leverage against Iran and other rogues. Mr. Chairman, when the Iranians came back to the table after President Rouhani's election to negotiate over the nuclear agreement, uh, one Western diplomat based in Tehran told me in confidence, you have won the war using economic sanctions and financial pressure, but he then asked, can you win the peace? I think and hope we can still win the peace, but it will require using and leveraging the very same powers and authorities that help bring the regime to the table. We must ensure that the JCPOA has not inadvertently empowered the regime in Tehran while taking one of America's most potent powers off the table. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Mr. Nephew. Thank you, Chairman Corker, Ranking Member Cardin, and other distinguished members of this committee 
for inviting me to speak today. It is a privilege and an honor to speak to you about a subject to which I have dedicated my professional life, the Iranian nuclear program and sanctions, and with Juan, who pioneered a lot of the work that we're going to be discussing today. Thank you. I would like to begin by extending my personal gratitude to the members of the U.S. negotiating team. Regardless of how one evaluates this deal, we are all most fortunate that this country produces diplomats, civil servants, and experts like those who worked on this deal. In my opinion, the deal that they negotiated is a very good one, especially compared to the most realistic alternatives, and any negative consequences can be managed. It satisfies the two most important U.S. national security objectives for Iran's nuclear program. First, lengthening the time that Iran would need to produce enough nuclear material for one nuclear weapon. And second, ensuring that any such attempt could be quickly detected. In doing so, it creates a 10 to 15 year band of time in which fears of an Iranian nuclear weapon will be much reduced. Some may argue that the sunset of key provisions renders the deal unacceptable. And I disagree that these concerns are worth killing the deal. The argument against sunset presupposes either that there is no point in time in which Iran could be trusted with a nuclear program requiring regime change, or that negotiations could possibly have delivered a longer sunset. But having been in that room, I believe the length is as long as was achievable. And in any event, after key restrictions lapse, the United States is also free to declare that Iran's nuclear program remains a concern. Getting international support to do something about it will require effective diplomacy, but it is an option for a future president. A principal complaint and main subject for today is on the nature of sanctions relief in the deal. Some have argued that it provides Iran with far too much relief and that the practical effect of increasing trade with Iran will render snapback ineffective. First, it is a blunt reality that Iran was not going to accept major restrictions and invasive monitoring on the cheap. The administration did the right thing in leveraging sanctions relief for maximum early nuclear steps. Iran is now under every incentive to take the steps required of it as soon as possible, which the IAEA will verify before Iran gets an extra dollar. Of course, the sanctions relief provided by the United States does not equate with unilateral sanctions disarmament. The United States retains a number of sanctions authorities that will continue to exact consequences for Iranian violations of human rights and damage Iran's ability to engage in terrorism financing, though I personally believe that fears about the extent of new Iranian spending in this regard are overblown. And according to the LA Times anyway, so does the CIA. But foremost of our tools include secondary sanctions. And the United States will still be able to pressure banks and companies into not doing business with the IRGC, Quds Force, Ghassan Soleimani, and Iran's military and missile forces, as well as those who facilitate their business. Even if the EU and UN remove some of these from their list, these bad actors in Iran generally will find business stymied until they correct their own behavior in the eyes of the United States. This is both due to the direct risk of US sanctions and the improvement in international banking practices since 9-11, a bipartisan effort begun under George Bush and Juan and continued under Barack Obama. The United States will also retain its ability to impose sanctions on those trading with Iran in conventional arms, as well as with respect to ballistic missiles, even after UN restrictions lapse. The United States can also trigger snapback of existing sanctions. Even just one JCPOA participant can trigger UNSC review and a vote on a UNSC resolution to continue with relief. The US veto power in the UN Security Council gives us the ultimate free hand to reimpose these sanctions. 
and snapback can be less draconian to deal with lesser violations, as Secretary Lewis testified. This could come with political costs. Many skeptics point to these costs as likely meaning that no such snapback would ever be triggered. But international reaction to US actions will always depend on the context. If the rationale for doing so is credible, then chances for success will always be higher. Iran, too, would have much to lose if snapback were to be triggered. Iran's leaders would therefore have to carefully evaluate the costs and benefits of any course of action that threatens the integrity of the nuclear deal. These costs will grow as Iran's economy grows. Some may see this as resilience, but I see it as Iran having more to lose. A critic once referred to this deal as a Marshall Plan for Iran. And while the analogy is very far from perfect, it is interesting. The Marshall Plan was intended in part to prevent the spread of radicalism in Europe after the Second World War, to, in recognition of the effect that harsh sanctions had on German politics in the 1920s and 30s, and the liberalizing benefits of trade and growth. In fact, the Soviets refused to participate, fearing the effect of economic openness would have on their population. As the President has outlined, one potential benefit of the deal is the possible transformation of Iranian society, and over time, government policy. This may not happen, but at a minimum, Iran's leaders will have to wrestle with the benefits of economic openness and risks of losing control as a result of this deal, as well as the threat of returning sanctions if they break its terms. This will be a challenge for them, and possibly an existential one. To conclude, though it is not a perfect deal, I believe the nuclear deal reached by the United States, its P5 plus 1 partners, and Iran meets our needs, preserves our options, and possibly lays the path to a better future. And I urge the Congress to make the right choice and to support it. Thank you, sir. Thank you both. And uh, we can see from these two witnesses why this is a, a difficult decision for people to make. So uh, we thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, so that I can reserve my time for various interjections along the way and not dominate in any way, um, I'm going to turn to our ranking member for questions and then uh, move on down the line. Thank you. Well, let me also join the chairman in thanking you both for your presence here today and for your, for your testimony. So, so let me give you um, a hypothetical. It's a year from now, and Iran complied with all of the preliminaries required, and they have received the relief a few months earlier than that uh, from both the United States, uh, the waivers being exercised by the administration on sanctions, as well as the UN and Europe. We get uh, clear evidence that uh, Iran has used crude oil sales to directly finance terrorist activities in Lebanon and Yemen. And they've done it through the Central Bank of Iran with clear evidence of that. The United States Congress passes a statute that says that we'll impose sanctions against Iran for their support of terrorism against the Central Bank of Iran and crude oil sales. A, are we in compliance with the JCPOA? And secondly, what pressure would there be on the administration to implement such a statute if Congress were to pass it? Any thoughts? Senator, it's, it's an astute hypothetical because it points out the difficulty of disentangling the sanctions regime in, in, with respect to a country and a regime that controls key elements of the economy, strategic elements, the banking system, and wh when they are still engaged in some of the underlying activity that is subject to, uh, at, at a minimum, U.S. sanctions. 
So it certainly would be within the Congress's right, and I would argue certainly should be a focus of the administration to go after the financial conduits that the Iranian regime or any other state sponsor uses to support destabilizing activity or to support terrorist groups anywhere around the world. Uh, and so it would be wholly justified. To Richard's point, I think in the context of any action taken in the penumbra of the JCPOA uh, context, um, it would depend on what information and evidence we have. The problem I have with the JCPOA framework, as I laid out in both my uh, submitted testimony and orally uh, this morning, is that we've now established ourselves and placed ourselves into a framework where we ourselves are going to have to submit or at least potentially have to answer to other parties why we're justifying the use of U.S. national power with respect to these other types of uh, challenges and risks. And so under the agreement, uh, the Iranians, for example, could object, uh, could threaten to walk away, uh, and perhaps even the view of some legitimately say, you are simply trying to reimpose sanctions that were uh, just lifted under another name. Now, of course, the administration is saying, and we would argue, all of us, that these are different sanctions and they should be imposed and they can be imposed, but there would be a question in the context of the JCPOA and probably a process triggered if it were significant enough action uh, that would call into question whether or not we could take the action. Ultimately, it may prevail, uh, but it would put us into a completely new venue and into a new process to have to explain ourselves, demonstrate evidence to parties like the Chinese and Russians, uh, and ultimately uh, justify our action in the contours of the JCPOA. Um, I just don't think that's an acceptable Nothing. outcome. Thank you, Senator. I, I would agree with much of what Juan said, but I would add two important, I think, uh, uh, caveats or conditions to it. First is we've always had to justify and explain our secondary sanctions. We have to bear in mind that the sanctions that you're referring to govern the trade activity of foreigners with foreigners. And to get them to do things, we have to explain why, and we have to explain in, in what context it's appropriate. I, I think that going after the hypothetical that you brought up, um, would be complicated because the Chinese, for instance, or other importers of Iranian oil would say, but, but we've known for a long time that Iran supports these groups, that's a given. And that was a given when we were uh, writing the JCPOA. So what, what changed that made you have to do this? And I think this points to the second problem. The, the hypothetical you brought up will happen because oil is a primary revenue stream for Iran and it's a primary way in which they support groups that we believe are terrorists and that we engage as terrorists. I think the bigger question to my mind is, is that the most effective way of curtailing Iranian terrorism? In my view, no. We've had very crushing oil sanctions on Iran for the last three years, and they have still supported Assad, they've still supported the Houthis, they've still supported Hezbollah. And that's because, frankly, the scope and scale of that support doesn't have to be oil revenue worthy. It, it can be much smaller, and it's something the Iranians believe in strongly. So I would argue that rather than go for an oil embargo type sanction, we actually have to think of a better policy response to deal with the terrorist issue that we've identified. Well, my concern is, we, we, do, do we have the flexibility to do that? Do we have the flexibility? You may very well be right. We may choose other ways. The reason I use that two examples because they were lifted by the sanctions. I, uh, absolutely. Um, here, I guess, is the question. Yesterday, we heard from both witnesses that the U.S. should be pretty aggressive in making sure Iran complies with the letter of everything is said in this agreement and be prepared to, to start taking action. 
Iran's past activities show that they test us. They try to push the envelope as far as they can. So they will interpret some of the JCPOA differently than we do, and they'll do things that we think are wrong. How aggressive should we be, and can we get our partners to agree with us on less than uh, major uh, violations? Will we be able to do that? Well, sir, I mean, what I would argue is, again, it depends on the context. If we go with a good case and we are able to justify why we are doing it, then we can be very effective, as we were from 2011 to 2013 with respect to the oil embargo. On the other hand, if we are seen as acting capriciously and if the Iranian response is to say we're walking away from the nuclear deal, that, that will be a challenge. And I think ultimately we need to be aggressive, but we also need to be mindful that the nuclear deal, again in my view, is something that's worth preserving. So I, I don't think that precludes our use of sanctions tools in a very aggressive way, but just like we've already done, we're going to be, have to be careful about the unintended consequences of those acts. And then lastly, let me point out, if we have to snap back, if there is a substantial violation that we have to take to the international community and, and maybe exercise our veto, how quickly can they bite strong enough to affect Iranian behavior? Well, Senator, I would say that if we are able to get snapback and in a context that is conducive to people imposing swift sanctions, we, we can start biting the Iranian economy quite quickly. The, the oil embargo that we were just talking about started having dramatic economic effects on Iran within two or three months of being really imposed starting in January of 2012. So again, I think with the right context with cooperation, we can start to really have an impact on the Iranian economy. I would just point out you were a little bit inconsistent on oil. You said at one time that would not be effective to stop them from financing terrorism if we imposed a sanction, but now you're saying that could bite quickly. Well, well sir, what I would say is I, I think I'm not saying that they, it wouldn't bite the economy. My, my point, sir, on terrorism is that biting the economy does not necessarily preclude Iranian support for terrorism. So you can have damaging impact on the Iranian economy, but will that translate into stopping Iranian terrorism? In, in my view, the history suggests not. Senator, if I could just address this question of strategy and the use of these tools, because I think um, our toolkit is not expansive. I mean, we, we have limited tools to address whether it's terrorism, human rights abuses, et cetera. And the use of financial power and the power to exclude from the global system is one of our principal, if not most effective tools. And so I, I take Richard's point, which is a, an important one, which is we have to have a comprehensive strategy. We have to use all tools of national power, no, no doubt. But the reality is, at the end of the day, these tools are the ones that prove to be most effective. And as I said in my testimony, I actually think the risks to the international financial system go up with this deal or any other deal with respect to Iranian activity. So we're going to have to, if we're honest about what's happening in the international financial commercial order, we're going to have to crack down on Quds Force front companies, IRGC uh, funding flows, contracts run by the Ministry of Intelligence. I mean, that's the nature of the Iranian economy and the way that they do business and the way that they have reach. It's precisely what we cut off that, that harm them so much. And so you've asked a very astute set of, of questions because I think at the heart of this is, have we given up too much of our power to deal with all of these other risks that Iran presents that will actually go up over time? Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. So before I move over to Senator Flake, just uh, since you guys have somewhat different views, I wonder if we could get consensus. It, it would be fair to say, on the other hand, that in nine months when the sanctions, most people believe all of the sanctions will be gone, and, and then Iran has, in essence, 
the nuclear snapback, that people are going to be somewhat reticent to put sanctions in place uh, if Iran cheats by inches because of the things that you're saying. I mean, Iran does have the ability to say at that moment, well, we're out of the program. So would you agree, I think both of you are shaking your head up and down, that that does create a dilemma? I'll take that as a yes. Y yes, others. Senator. Yes. Okay, Incrementalism thanks. is a risk right. here. Huge risk. Senator Flake, thank you. Thank you. I want to thank the chairman and ranking minority member for putting these hearings together. And uh, hearing your testimony today, each on one side of this in terms of uh, whether you favor the agreement or not, it I, I think demonstrates that uh, the only thing that's certain is this is no easy call. And for those who stand and, and say, uh, you know, that it is, I, I think they haven't examined the agreement or the broader foreign policy context in which this is going to be implemented. And so I, I appreciate the testimony and, uh, and the, the way you've, you've gone about it. And I appreciate the uh, question from uh, the ranking minority member. And I think all of us will have some variant of the same kind of questions because we have asked administration witnesses. We have been assured that uh, we haven't diminished our toolkit that we can distinguish between nuclear and non-nuclear sanctions. But when you read the plain text of the agreement, that seems to conflict with the assurances that we've received. Um, and uh, let me just turn to the financial sanctions. I, I couldn't agree more that that's, and I've always felt that that's what really finally bit uh, because it's more difficult with these financial, these tertiary or secondary sanctions for the Russians, the Chinese, or others to help Iran evade, uh, which is easier to do with, with just crude oil sanctions or, or, or other petroleum sanctions. Uh, but if we find that Iran is linked directly to terrorism and we want to, to, to punish and go in, I'm, when I look at the agreement, it seems difficult to do that. But on the financial sanctions, if we decide to do so, um, how effective will that be if our European allies are not with us? Um, I'd like your assessment of, uh, and I, I hear conflicting testimony and, and discussion from others about uh, whether or not we can lead on that and that the, the, our European partners will eventually have to follow um, or uh, if, if they can go their merry way and we're left with unilateral sanctions, which rarely work. Uh, what's your assessment on the financial sanctions? Is this something we can lead our partners back uh, to be with us? Do they have to be with us, given the nature of these sanctions? Whether people choose to do business with a $17 trillion economy or a trillion-dollar economy, what do you make of that, Mr. Zarate, first? Senator, again, another very astute question. I think um, the financial sanctions have been led by the U.S. because the U.S. is the dominant economic and financial center of the world. The U.S. dollar is the reserve currency. Uh, and we have the, the moral and uh, strategic suasion to be able to affect what others do, both governments and the private sector. And I want to emphasize the, the last point, because I, I do think we shouldn't undervalue or undercut uh, the power of our U.S. financial sanctions. In many ways, U.S. unilateral sanctions that affect the financial community, in, in the first instance here, Iranian banks, um, are global by definition. There is no unilateral U.S. financial sanction. What the U.S. says in terms of how to interact with U.S. financial institutions and U.S. markets 
is a global standard and in fact is applied as such by the private sector. One of the interesting things here, and this, this goes to a time dimension of this, of this issue, one of the interesting things here is that I think there is still a major opportunity to shape the environment and the risk calculus of the private sector. In many instances, the major global banks, non-American banks around the world, are de-risking uh, enormously. They're making decisions not to do business in Iran, perhaps not to do business in Cuba, regardless of where sanctions policy is going, almost in an opposite direction. And so what Congress says, what the U.S. does, what the U.S. Treasury may put out in advisories or designations has an enormous uh, power and capability to shape the market. And so I don't want to undercut anything I say here to undercut that reality. But in the context of this deal and the way it's framed, that diminishes over time because the international sanctions architecture in the U.N., in the EU directives, really does enable countries that may not be quite as enthusiastic about the, this risk calculus to participate. But I would say that if we wanted to affect the global financial system, if we wanted to isolate Iranian banks based on legitimate concerns that, that are demonstrable, that we can put out in registries, that we could uh, put out and, and show to our allies, that has enormous power and, and capability to uh, isolate the Iranians. Would that be accepted by the Iranians based on the reading of the deal? Probably not. Uh, but that's why I'm so concerned about th the constraint on our power based on the agreement. Mr. Nephew. Senator, I would actually agree with a lot of what Juan had to say. I think the only thing I would add is, again, this concept of, of, the, of the context matters. You know, if we are going after an Iranian bank because of very clear evidence of support for terrorism, a direct facilitation of payment for terrorism, then I think our ability to go to European countries and say, you need to impose sanctions against this bank will be quite strong. It's been in the past. Um, if, on the other hand, we're seen as capricious, then I don't think that that is going to have the same kind of impact. Um, that doesn't mean we won't have, though, financial companies and financial institutions cooperate. And this is an important point I want to note. It may be that we're able to influence banks and company behavior, even if their governments are not supportive. And, and frankly, this is what we did from 2005, really, until 2010 in Europe. But the danger of that is that you start to have European governments or Japanese government or anybody else pass laws that say you're not allowed to comply with U.S. sanctions, as what happened in 1996 with the uh, Iran Sanctions Act originally. So I think there is still U.S. unilateral power that we can use in the financial sector. But with that power comes the responsibility to wield it, I think, effectively and carefully, lest we challenge ourselves with WTO and, and so on and so forth. I think the concern that we have is that uh, we, the leverage point actually goes to Iran. Or, or does it, if we find that they're engaged in nefarious activities that we want to impose sanctions on, uh, and, and given the multilateral nature of this agreement and the fact that uh, we would have to submit to the, the body um, that we believe that Iran has violated uh, you know, good behavior and we want to impose sanctions, and given the interlocking nature of these financial sanctions and how it affects banks private companies and governments, that it might be even more difficult uh, to get them to agree to allow us to impose those sanctions if that's what we have to do. And if we go it alone, then that's a whole uh, different can of worms. So anyway, I, my time is done, but I appreciate the answers, and I'm sure this will be touched on later. So thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. And before going to Senator Menendez, uh, there was another question Senator Flake had asked in a previous setting that I'm going to use part of my time to 
follow up on. We sent out a nine-page summary of, of, you know, about 13 documents to kind of help everybody understand quickly uh, what the, the deal was. And in that, we talked about contracts that were entered into. In other words, if you lift sanctions, contracts that you are entered into, the way we read it, it those contracts are grandfathered. In other words, you can continue to do business under those contracts even if sanctions are put in place after. We had some pushback, and obviously we don't want to be accused of sending something out that has faults, so we asked the White House for red lines. We never got that. And then we started to send out something to qualify. Actually, I think we did, but candidly, as we've sat down and talked with the experts that we typically rely upon for these kind of things, they're telling us that, in fact, we were right in the first place, that contracts that are entered into when sanctions are lifted are grandfathered. Could you give us some clarification as to whether that is or is not the case, Mr. Zarati? Mr. Chairman, it's a great question. I read paragraph 14 of the new UN Security Council resolution to create some sort of a grandfather provision. Now, this is uh, not uh, a typical paragraph in these kinds of sanctions regimes. Now, of course, this is uh, related to snapback uh, provision, which is not uh, usual in these types of regimes uh, anyway. But I read that to open the door for some sort of grandfathering provision. And so you could read it in a maximalist way to say, look, there is, uh, there is no application of the snapback to contracts that are signed between the lifting of the sanctions and the snapback. That, that creates the potential uh, gold rush effect that I talked about. Um, if you read this to say, look, it has to be uh, contracts that don't have anything to do with prior sanctions, well, then you'd say, look, if there is a contract with the IRGC or some other element that is now relisted, that has to be nullified, perhaps. But I would say in the interpretation of any of these sanctions, whether they're uh, related to Iran or North Korea, there has always been slippage of interpretation, especially when talking to the Chinese or, or Russians about what some of these provisions mean. And so I would imagine, at a minimum, there would be a fight diplomatically over what this provision means and what contracts with Chinese banks, Chinese companies, Russian banks, Russian companies would ultimately mean. And I would, would say, Mr. Chairman, it is interesting that the Russians are a part of this commission, in part because they are under uh, and, and chafing under the sanctions regime led by the U.S. and the European Union. And so they're going to have every interest to undermine any capability of uh, thwarting commercial relations that affect their economy as well. What, could I get you, again, to try to reach at least a degree of agreement? Um, would you say at a minimum that it's highly unusual that a clause like that would be in agreement like this uh, when typically it's, it's very clear that uh, uh, there's no ambiguity? I mean, is that, it's an unusual clause to have in an agreement like this. Go ahead, Mr. Nephew. Well, Senator, if I can, I mean, I, I think this is an unusual agreement in a lot of respects, so I wouldn't necessarily call it that particular provision the most unusual. I, I would disagree with the idea that this immunizes long-term contracts. I, I think the intent here is basically to assure people that if they invest in Iran and snapback is triggered, that we will not impose sanctions for the plant that was built or for the, 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 the business that was conducted. That the intent is to say that business will not be sanctioned, but that doesn't stop us from saying you now have to stop performing 
the business under the contract. So it's less an issue of does it nullify or does it protect contracts, it's more that performance of the contract from snapback forward can occur. Very similar to what we did with special rule under the Sasada. So, so let me just, if BP built a billion dollar facility to um, produce oil in Iran, um, and so they invested that billion dollars, um, and so they're performing under that contract, they're producing X uh, barrels a day, and they did that after the sanctions were lifted, could they continue under that contract or not? Senator, my understanding is no, that at the moment snapback is triggered, the BP staff and whatever financing is still going on or whatever technical assistance is still going on has to be stopped, but that the United States government will now not sanction them for having built in the plant in the first place. Do you agree with that, Zarati? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think this is, this is a, a question as to how this gets executed and who's interpreting it. And I think this will, you know, this can be, uh, this can be affected by the nature of this snapback. If there's a tailored snapback, uh, this could be impacted. It could be impacted by the nature of the contract itself. Uh, there could be spe special purpose vehicles created to, to contend with this provision to make sure that there could be a continuity of the, of the, uh, of the actions. And I think you could have parties uh, at the UN, the Permanent Five, arguing that as long as the continued activities aren't uh, furthering the activities that are sanctioned, if you can assure that they are clean, for example, or, or productive, that they shouldn't fall under the, this provision. So I'm not convinced yet that there's clarity as to how this would apply. Thank you, Beth, uh, very much. Senator Menendez. Well, thank you, uh, Mr. Chairman. And Mr. Chairman, before I get to the <clears throat> issue that our witnesses are here for, I, I want to comment on you and the ranking member's request to the IAEA. And I am deeply, deeply disappointed of their unwillingness to come in any session, public or classified, to have a discussion. This whole agreement rests upon, if you support it, the concept of inspection and verification by whom? By the IAEA. We are putting an enormous part of the national security of the United States and of our allies in the region in the IAEA a UN organization for which we pay membership dues. For us not to be able, for, and maybe their fear is the questions of Park Chi, in which they can allege and take the position that's private, we're not gonna talk about that, but the entire inspection regime, the entire verification regime, depends upon the IAEA. And not to be able to question the IAEA about how they're going to go about it, about their abilities to do so, about the budgetary realities that they may need in order to accomplish what we want them to accomplish. I don't know how one can come to a conclusion on this agreement without understanding from the agency that is involved. The most critical end element of this agreement is them. Forget about the sanctions, because sanctions only come into play if they're uh, you know, not performing. We have to know whether they're performing in the first instance and in the implementation, then we have to know subsequently if they're performing afterwards. So I would hope that we would find a mechanism, and whether that is a, a letter, uh, I mean, I know that you and the ranking member, and I applaud you for having done that, of every member of this committee, whether that is a resolution of the United States Senate that could be quickly passed calling upon the IAEA to engage in consultations with the Senate, 
You cannot advise and consent, in a sense, to something for which you are going in the blind on pure faith without knowing the wherewithal as to how that agency, essential to this agreement, if one believes in it, is ultimately going to do its job and for which we are going to depend upon our interest for. I, I, uh, it's amazing to me. So I would urge the chair and the ranking member, and I, and I would be happy, I'm sure many other members would agree, to engage with you in any way possible to bring that about. And if it doesn't, then that's a, that's a critical material issue for me. So I, ju I just wanted to speak to that. Uh, let me thank both of you for not only your testimony, but your service to our country. It's been both exceptional. Uh, you know, I, I, uh, I look at this whole question of sanctions vis-a-vis -vis incrementalism, and it's a very poignant question. Why? How did Iran get to where we are today? Because through incrementalism, through deceit, deception, delay, through notwithstanding UN Security Council resolutions in the world saying you cannot, you shall not, but they did. And each step of the way, we were collectively reticent to do what was necessary to stop them until it got to a certain point that uh, both the world and, to be very honest with you, Congress drove some of the most critical elements despite the opposition of administrations. And so when I think about the context of potential violations and looking at the agreement and thinking about what is substantial or not substantial, I see a history, you know, if you go by the archives building here in Washington, over its portal it says what is past is prologue. And you have a 20-year history here of getting to the point of being a threshold nuclear state by everything that Iran did. So you give it a little bit and give it a little bit because you want to preserve the agreement and you don't, as some of our witnesses yesterday, including those who support it, give it a quick, say, no, no, no. This agreement is not for you to play with. We're not going to give you a little bit. We're not going to give you a little bit more. We're going to come down heavy now. But I am concerned, based upon other iterations, of our unwillingness at times to engage in the type of sanctions regime that are necessary. I, I look at how hard it's been on the Magnitsky list to get people listed. I look at how hard it is, despite congressional legislation signed into law on Venezuela. I look at how hard it is in Russia and the Ukraine to pursue additional sanctions to try to get them to deter their actions. I look at how difficult it is as it relates to Syria, where we still haven't gotten all the chemical weapons. And so, you know, the concern for me is if you want the deal so bad and you hope that it will work so well that you're willing to overlook elements that may seem small at the time but begin to grow collectively and then collectively you have a point in time in which you say, oh my God, which is where we're at right now. So I, I think that those are critical questions. Now, Mr. Zarate, I, I, I want to understand something. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm pretty convinced of it, but I want to make sure that I just haven't self-convinced myself because I want to be convinced. Uh, on page 26 of the agreement, it says, uh, the United States administration, acting consistent with the respective roles of the president and the Congress, will refrain from reintroducing 
or reimposing the sanctions specified in Annex II, which is basically the congressionally mandated sanctions, that it has ceased applying under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action without prejudice to the dispute resolution. So I tried to get from Secretary Liu a very clear definitive view. You, know, view. you either have the right to reimpose uh, ISA sanctions that expire next year or you don't. You can maybe argue about the timing, but you either have the right or, or you don't. Now, I, I did not get a clear answer from him. If anything, I suggested that, well, it sounds like you want the sanctions to expire. He did not uh, oppose that view, didn't say, that's, you know, yes, that's what I want, but he didn't say, no, that's absolutely wrong. And when I pursue, why shouldn't we reauthorize those sanctions so that if deterrence is in part by the virtue of consequences, which is that there's an actionable activity, uh, there's an actionable consequence to an activity that you take that is in violation of the agreement, you have to think twice about it, which is a lot of what your discussion was as it relates to. Uh, one, shouldn't we have those sanctions in place with all the same provisions in the president's waiver options? And secondly, do you read this agreement to suggest that uh, we cannot do that or we'll be in violation of the agreement. Well, Senator, I think I'm in uh, full agreement with you that the, it appears that uh, reimposition would put us in violation of uh, the JCPOA, or at a minimum would subject any action by Congress in that regard to reimpose uh, Iran Sanctions Act as... Uh, actually, it's not only reimposition. Reimposition could suggest that you're actually imposing the sanctions. Right. It says reintroducing. Right. No, I think that's exactly right, which raises the question as to whether or not the waiver provision is good enough as a safeguard, right? And I think this goes to the larger point uh, that we were discussing earlier about whether or not this framework itself, the way it's structured, actually uh, takes away uh, the ability of the U.S. government to actually dictate how it's going to frame the use of these powers, whether it's in a de deterrent mode or whether it's in application. The other part of this, Senator, that, that we've already discussed is the, the problem that if you begin to impact those same elements of the economy of Iran that are implicated by ISA in some other way, uh, that that too could poten potentially be viewed as a violation of that provision. And so I just think the construct, um, as laid out, uh, puts too much uh, power in the hands of Iran and those who might object to what it is that we are trying to impact, uh, either in deterrent mode or in, in effect. Let me ask two other questions. One is, well, one is an observation. It seems to me that the burden is shifting here, that under the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, it's almost like we've got to prove our case uh, and that, you know, versus that, look, you're, you're in violation. And of course, we should say why a country's in violation, right? It just shouldn't arbitrarily and capriciously do it. But, but the burden of proof seems to shift. And doesn't that burden, we all talk about violations, you know, uh, in the short term. Well, what about in the long term when Iran has become uh, a more significant uh, nuclear uh, potentially, uh, you know, industrial size, the dual use potentials of that will be far harder to make the case on than it will under its present circumstances. Is that, is that a fair statement? I would say you're absolutely right in terms of the framework of the JCPOA. And in my written uh, testimony submitted um, to the committee, 
Um, what, I, what I suggest is that's one of the fundamental uh, problems of the JCPOA. Put aside the sanctions issue, it's the fact that Iran has suddenly become an equal partner in this framework and that the, the U.S., along with other parties, are now on equal footing in terms of how they present evidence and information and the burden of persuasion and proof, which had all along under the U.N. Security Council resolutions been on Iran as the suspect actor, has now shifted. And I think that's, that's part of the problem of the process, whether it's with respect to the nuclear delics or with respect to sanctions. I think we've moved into a different uh, frame of reference diplomatically, which does get harder over time. You're absolutely right. Uh, my final point, Mr. Chair, as my time has expired, is that you know, one of the things I grapple with is, uh, and, I, and it came to me again when Mr. Nephew was uh, responding to uh, one of your questions, is you know, the hope here that the Iranians enter into a deal that changes the course of their country's conduct. But you know, the whole focus, at least as I see it up to now of their actions, is uh, the Ayatollah trying to think about how do I preserve the regime and the revolution? And it would be a unique thought to think that they are entering into an agreement that would mean the end of the regime and the revolution. Certainly, if they're doing that, it may be, you know, certainly, I don't think it's their intent. And hopefully, if this all passes and happens, it will be the consequence. But I don't think they're entering into it with the intent of the thinking that this will end the revolution or the regime. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you, Senator Perdue. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I'd like to read just a few um, sentences here uh, and lead to a quick question. Thank you guys for your careers and, and your help. This is very helpful today. Uh, I'm encouraged because so far this committee has really uh, addressed this issue in a nonpartisan. I'm not even going to use bipartisan. It's a nonpartisan issue. This is the security of our country and, indeed, I think the security of the world. But um, this, historic, this is from the uh, JCPOA. This historic JCPOA will ensure that Iran's nuclear program will be exclusively peaceful. Iran reaffirms that under no circumstances will Iran ever seek, develop, or acquire any nuclear weapons. This JCOP, or JCPOA, sorry, will allow it to move for, Iran to move forward with an exclusively peaceful indigenous nuclear program in line with scientific and economic consideration. I just have one question, the whole process. We started in the beginning and allowed them to have enrichment in the very beginning. There are 18 countries, and we talked about this yesterday, there are 18 countries out of 180-plus countries in, JC, in, uh, in the uh, non-proliferation treaty. There are 32 countries that have enrichment, or I'm sorry, that have uh, peaceful nuclear programs. There are only 18 that uh, have uh, civil programs but can enrich, 18. So there are only about 14 countries that have the combination. Only nine countries have the bomb. Five countries have civil programs but are not allowed or that can enrich, countries like Germany and Japan. So my question is, that if you look at this thing historically, we did a similar deal with North Korea, and it didn't work out so well. I think we might have been naive in, in looking at it in, back, uh, in historical terms. The problem with this deal that I can see so far, and I'm still trying to look at it in a measured way, truthfully, is that this deal, in my mind, does not preclude Iran from becoming a nuclear weapon state, even though we just saw the intent of the, of the agreement was to do that. I think, Mr. Uh, Mr. Nephew, even this morning, you said over time we talked about the sunsets and so forth. This deal, over some period of time, certainly gives them an opportunity to have a nuclear weapon. 
So when I look at this thing, it's, it comes down, do we have a false choice, accept this deal or war? And I don't, I don't accept that. And my question this morning leads to that. But initially, when we did this enrichment and allowed him to go that way, it, it, in my mind, violates the very issue that we have here. A peaceful, indigenous nuclear program does not require enrichment. And all, although we've now taken that up as the presumption, and I challenge that, but that's historical, it's given. In this agreement, they are allowed to enrich. So I have, I have a question. So if we have to go it alone, let's just say, I'm trying to understand, is there an alternative to the position we're in right now? And I'd like both of you to address, in my opinion, I'm a business guy. I'm an outsider of this process. You don't sanction countries, you sanction companies. And so when you look at the financial industry and their energy industry, and you sanction from our $18 trillion economy, and you start sanctioning businesses, you can have a lot of teeth. We don't need any other sanctions, in my opinion, to really have a dramatic impact on this regime. And we know from the past history, recent history, just in the last five years, under this administration, when they doubled down on those sanctions, it brought them to the table. In my opinion, we gave in too early. My question to both of you this morning, do we have an alternative that we haven't talked about in detail, and that's another alternative to war or this deal as it is? Mr. Nephew. Senator, I, I think it's a very important question, um, and I, I don't know that you're like my answer. Uh, my, my view is that- Why would, why would you say that? Well, I, I think the, at the end of the day, while it's certainly true that um, it would be our preference that Iran not have an enrichment program, there is nothing in the Non-Proliferation Treaty that goes back to the late 60s that precludes countries from having one. The way in which we were able to mount all this pressure and all these sanctions on Iran is because, as Senator Menendez was describing, they engaged in years of cheating on that program. But right? I'm sorry to interrupt, but, but they, they went back and said, look, we need to have enrichment because we can't secure a consistent flow of material. And yet 18 countries do that. So I, I, I push back a little bit on the presupposition. Well, well but sir, the, those 18 countries were not subjected to the kinds of pressure and sanctions campaign and they tactics. They weren't violators that, that, of, of NPT laws like this regime has been either. That, that's correct. And that's why I would never apologize for what we have done. But the practical reality is that Iran in 2015 faces a history in which we attempted to strangle the nuclear program in the cradle as often as we possibly could, including throughout the 1990s right. and even even going back beyond that. From the Iranian perspective, they could not sign on to a deal that didn't enshrine their ability to have an indigenous nuclear energy program, including enrichment. And while that certainly would not have been my preference going into this conversation, I started my jobs uh, as, as the guy going after Iranian enrichment efforts, the practical reality is we faced a country that was not relinquishing this, um, this, this right and this capability. We're going to run out of time. I want address the idea, of can, is there an alternative to what we're doing now? In other words, is there a, it, it, we've got to consider that. If, if we don't agree with this deal, do we have an alternative? Sir, my view is that if we don't agree to this deal, the Iranians are going to start installing more centrifuges, and if we get back to the table, we're going to be dealing with 30,000 centrifuges but, no, and a completed reactor. Specifically, though, is would sanctions unilaterally have impact? That's, have, that's really what it comes down to. I do not believe U.S. sanctions would stop Iran's enrichment program permanently. Okay, thank you. Mr. Zerani? Senator, I think U.S. Uh, financial power and influence is, is enormous and would have an impact. Would it stop a nuclear program alone? I don't think so. I've argued for a long time that the use of financial power and influence has to be part of a broader strategy uh, of, of influence and leverage against the regime to bring them to the table and also to, to get them to stop uh, movement toward a nuclear program. And I you're, think you're, I'm you, sorry, you're experts in this, both of you. Yeah. Is it 
do, do you believe that they have to have enrichment um, capability in order to have a peaceful nuclear program in Iran? Absolutely not. Okay. No. So I'm, I'm not a nuclear physicist, but I, that, I know. my understanding I'm sorry of the issue is absolutely not. not your field. Go no, on. But, but, but it raises an interesting point because you talk about that having been a concession up front. Um, the other problem with the structure is we, we may be conceding uh, most favored nation status in terms of a sanctions regime. Again, this is part of my problem with the structure. Given, given the structure, we're now allowing Iran a process and a, a vehicle to challenge the use of U.S. financial power. And oh, by the way, we've put it in a context where the Chinese and the Russians, which are no fans or in favor of U.S. power, financial power in particular, have a voice and a, and a vote. And so I think, I think the very structure of that is debilitating, not just with respect to Iran, but more broadly to the use of our power uh, for these other issues that we care about. So it goes to this question of, have we given Iran a most favored nation status in terms of how we've negotiated this deal? Mr. Chairman, I'm out of time, but I, I want to echo uh, Senator Menendez's uh, point. I, I'm, I'm very troubled by the side deals, and I know that side deals are, are deals directly done between the IAEA inspectors <laughs> and individual countries as is, is, uh, normal practice. This is not normal practice. We're signing a deal for the future of America, and it, it assumes that, we, uh, that those deals are part of this deal, the way I read this document. And in this document, those, docu those special deals are not mentioned, and I am really troubled that we're not going to be able to get the best advice from those people. I just don't know how we can make a decision without that, frankly. I'd, I'd, I'd encourage more pressure to be put on the IAEA to come before us to explain that. There may be very good explanations, but when I hear the types of inspection processes that are going to be done in places like Parchin, which are not mentioned in this document at all, I'm very troubled by that. Sorry, well, I, I think every, almost everything that's occurred in this committee uh, since uh, Chairman Menendez was chairman and I became chairman and Senator Cardin became ranking member has been done in a strong bipartisan way. So we're gonna craft a letter uh, for everyone if they wish to sign that will be crafted in such a way that it wanna, wanna hopefully affect anybody's sensibilities, urging uh, them to reconsider that and to come before us uh, next week. So uh, that's underway right now. And, um, certainly uh, would like everybody to have the opportunity to, to sign that if they wish. And Mr. Chairman, as long as we're making um, requests, I would also ask that we request a confidential classified briefing by our intelligence agencies. Okay. Uh, we'll do that, and I appreciate it. And Senator Coons. Thank you, Chairman Corker and Ranking Member Cardin. Thank you for the uh, spirit in which you're conducting these hearings. I think they are vitally important, and I would associate myself with the conversations uh, previously about the IAEA and their centrality uh, to the enforcement of this and the importance of our understanding uh, their roles and their capabilities and um, some of the concerns that have been raised I think are very central uh, to our understanding of this agreement. Let me, if I might, gentlemen, uh, just broadly touch on four different questions I hope in the next six minutes we'll get some response to. You had a vigorous disagreement about the grandfathering clause and what it means. Will it lead to a gold rush? Um, as long as they are not explicitly in furtherance of the sanctioned activity, um, contracts entered into will be allowed to continue to perform, or no, what it means is you won't be subject to sanctions for having entered into an agreement. I'm a lawyer. Who decides, and how does the outcome of that dispute resolution, I mean, I've gotten both answers from folks in senior levels of this government, current and former, but the reality is this is an agreement, and it's a multilateral agreement. 
and there are inevitably going to be disputes over this exact provision, and it raises the larger question about the extent to which we can rely on our allies in dispute resolution and the potential consequences of our ability to actually meaningfully enforce. First, second. Mr. Nephew, in a previous uh, exchange, um, you were saying that a certain proposal involving sanctions was not the best policy response to restrain likely ongoing Iranian support for the Houthis, for Hezbollah, for Assad. What is the best policy response? I think there's very legitimate concern by all of our regional allies that sanction relief, whether it's 50 billion or 100 billion, will lead to a significant flow of funds uh, into the Iranian Central Bank and then out regionally to support folks who we view as terrorists and who are significant bad players in the region. What would be the ideal policy response, whether sanctions, interdictions, or otherwise, if you were in a position to advise the administration on it, what would you do? Third, and I think this is an important question, if we go it alone, if we reject this deal and we rely on U.S. economic power to reimpose sanctions and seek to renegotiate tougher terms, what are the consequences for our role in the global financial system? Um, the Chinese have made persistent efforts to suggest to others that our central role, the fact that the dollar is the reserve currency of the world system, the fact that the vast majority of financial transactions run through the United States, should be lessened or weakened. What are the longer-term consequences? Will our allies really support us? Can we use the enormous leverage we have effectively and sustain it over time? And the last, any insights on the impact um, that those flows will have on Iran? Some suggest that the relief from sanctions, they will overwhelmingly have to invest in restoring their own oil and gas sector. Um, the oil sector has suffered a nearly 50% drop in the per barrel price of oil over the last year. Um, how will that influence their ability to finance and sustain what I think is their enduring commitment to promoting terrorism in the region and to being a destabilizing force and a determined opponent of our objectives in the region and the world? So, gentlemen, please, have fun. All right, I'll be quick to leave, to leave time. Um, on the issue of grandfathering, sir, uh, the, the decision on whether or not to impose sanctions um, with respect to the issue of grandfathering is, is the U.S. The United States gets to make the decision as to whether or not sanctions can be imposed um, under our own laws. Now, that doesn't mean, though, that we're not going to have response from our partners. If we were to go and sanction BP, Total, a number of other different institutions, I think we can expect a reaction from that. So as we've done in previous instances, I imagine that there will be at least consultation and engagement with our partners, both to ensure that we deal with any particular concerns they have with the action, as well as to protect our broader interests. But that does not mean that we can't, as we did in 2010, curtail the activities of partner companies um, in Iran, including with regard to oil and gas sector and whatnot, which we did with the use of, of the uh, Conference of Iran Sanctions Accountability Divestment Act. On uh, going it alone, um, my view is that if we decide to reject this deal and just use our sanctions, um, we will have an effect, and we will have an effect on Iran. But I don't think it will be as strong, nearly as strong, as we would have if we had cooperation, particularly out of Europe. Long term, I'm very concerned about overuse of U.S. sanctions removing it as a tool. And you spoke to the idea of the Chinese and others looking for alternative financial systems. That's my fear. My fear is that if we 
Go it alone here, as well as in other circumstances, we may actually invalidate the tool of financial sanctions in the future because people just create systems that don't have to involve us. On the issue of flows in Iran and what they'll do with them, my view is that they will use a lot of them on domestic economic needs. And as you pointed out, they've got a lot of infrastructure problems there. I think that Rouhani was elected on the basis of solving those problems. He wants to be reelected. And more importantly, the Iranian system doesn't want to have um, instability and conflict in the inside. Um, they are very concerned about things like Arab Spring and the color revolutions that happened in Eastern Europe. They don't want to see that happening in Iran. The way you deal with that is through domestic development at home. That doesn't mean they won't support some amount of terrorism with some of these additional funds, but I think they'll spend most of the money at home. And then very quick on the best policy response for the region, I, I think it needs to be a multifaceted approach involving targeted sanctions on individual bad actors and financial flows, but also it needs to be support such such as weapon sales, logistical support, cooperation with partners in dealing with individual terrorist groups and the broader regional security architecture. But it can't simply be just choke off all Iranian money and the problem is solved. Thank you. Senator Coons, I'll take them seriatim. Um, I, I think we run into a risk that the, the Joint Commission and the Sanctions Subcommittee becomes the arbiter of, right. of how to interpret these uh, sections, which by definition, is kind of how it's set up. And so I think we, we certainly can impose sanctions, but a lot of that then becomes subject to uh, discourse and debate in, the, in that context. Would, it, it, it all, would you try to find ways to pre-litigate that question? I think so. I th and this is an important point, I think, for the Congress, which is, I think, gaining clarity on what this all means to ensure that you're a lawyer, sir, mm -hmm. that there's a meeting of the minds here among all parties as to how this is actually going to work. You can't, you can't figure out all permutations, of course. But some of these fundamental questions should be answered before we move into the agreement, because I think it gets harder over time to either buck the agreement or to impose unilateral sanctions. I think we're in the, the sort of the, the most effective and powerful position to actually determine how this goes and how it's shaped. In some ways, it's how customary international law is created. You create the, the doctrine, the interpretive notes, et cetera, that explain how this is going to be applied. So I think that's right. Otherwise, I think you, you create an incentive for Iran to do what Saddam Hussein did in the oil for food scandal. And I, I helped uh, chase down his assets on behalf of the Treasury Department when I was there. What he did in the context of that sanctions regime was to pick winners and losers in part for geopolitical and diplomatic shielding. And so you have the potential here of the Iranians picking Chinese, Russian, and perhaps a selection of other European uh, allies on the ground who are going to have vested commercial interest in ensuring that this is interpreted the right way. Right. And so I think that's a real danger here. In terms of strategy, just to repeat uh, Richard's point, I think it has to be multifaceted, has to involve interdictions, has to involve strategic targeted uh, financial measures, has to involve uh, aggressive support to our proxies on the ground and our allies, which I think we've, we've, we've failed to do from a counterterrorism perspective to date. Uh, three, if we go it alone, I think, again, it's easier to do now than later. Uh, because over time, this, the, the sanctions regime sort of melts away. Uh, but I think the reality is, and I've written about this, you know, there are potential long-term consequences. Uh, the Russians and the Chinese are clearly trying to challenge and to create alternate platforms, payment platforms, uh, currency arrangements, trade arrangements, to circumvent the dollar and the, and the U.S. markets. Uh, on the margins, you talk to most experts, most Treasury officials, they'll, they'll say this is marginally relevant. There will be other factors that really drive whether or not the U.S. is the principal economy and the dollar is the principal reserve currency around the world. Rule of law, capital markets, 
the functionality of our, of our Congress, for example. So all those things matter perhaps more. And then finally, on the flow, flows on Iran, I think we should take the Iranians at their word. They're going to support uh, their proxies and allies. They have in the past. There's no question that the sanctions restrictions that we put in place for oil purposes, which Richard was a part of and this administration did a great job on, has impacted their ability to support Hezbollah, the Palestinian rejectionist groups, and their proxies. They will no doubt, and this is an ex expectation of folks like uh, um, uh, the, the Secretary General of Hezbollah, to be receiving uh, more funding from Iran in the future as a result of the sanctions relief. Thank you both, and thank you for your service. Thank you, and before turning to Senator Gardner, um, even though there may have been a little groundwork underway in advance, just for reporting back to New Hampshire, as to your efficacy, the, uh, the intel briefing will take place at five o'clock Monday. Okay, thank you. So, Senator Gardner. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you to uh, our witnesses today. Appreciate your time, service, and testimony. And uh, Mr. Chairman, I just wanted to clarify on the IAEA, they were offered both a, a setting such as this or a classified setting, is that correct? Yes, we, uh, in, in any form, and I think, uh, again, I, I think based on what we know about Parchin, um, all of us would like to dig into more. I mean, this, uh, I know that these agreements, generally speaking, are between the country and the IAEA, but generally speaking, we're in sort of new territory here altogether. And so, uh, again, we'll write a letter, though, for all of us to participate in, in trying to get them to change their mind. Mr. Chairman, if I might just clarify, in setting up with the chairman uh, and our staffs how we would proceed on reviewing uh, during the review period, uh, our staffs, Senator Corker and myself, all felt that information about the IAEA would be critically important and we should hear it directly from the IAEA. So from the beginning, it's been our hope that we could get direct communications with the IAEA. We know there are confidentiality between the IAEA and the participating state. We know that. We understand that. We also understand that information is shared at times in a confidential way with other member states. The United States, because of its separation of branches, it becomes a little bit more complicated. So we made that request from the beginning. We don't know how much of that's under control of our own government and how much is IAEA, and that's been one of the difficulties. Uh, there are two documents that we specifically requested that are confidential documents between Iran and the IAEA that we think are important for us to be able to see and review. So it's not just the direct contact with the IAEA for our review, which would be done, I am, would, 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 would believe in a confidential setting because of the, the information we would have to get. So we'll continue to press for that, uh, but it's an independent agency. It's not under control of the, uh, the federal, of the, uh, the U.S. government. And, and thank you for that, and thanks to the ranking member for being a part of these and making sure that these hearings are, are successfully uh, completed. And uh, I think it's important that we have that opportunity to hear, and I think, uh, I, don't, I can't imagine anybody, uh, regardless of who or where you are in the government, would be opposed to us hearing. Uh, the full details of the agreement, and I think that's important. And if, in the meantime, Mr. Chairman, perhaps if, uh, if the IAEA is unavailable, maybe we hear from Ali Hinanen, who is a deputy at the IAEA. I know he's testified uh, in the House, I believe, and I think uh, our witnesses yesterday 
mentioned uh, some of the comments he'd made about the agreement. If I could, we've had him, you know, as you can imagine, all of us do this, I know we have uh, experts in and out of our office nonstop, and we've had him in, but the problem is he hasn't seen the agreement. Yeah. So uh, Understand. It's, it's kind of problematic. Yeah. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for that. Uh, to, to turn to Mr. Zarate, a question for for you. Under the terms of the nuclear agreement, uh, we talked a lot at the hearing with Secretary Liu about some of the uh, individuals, some of the, the businesses that were de-designated, uh, delisted. And one of the companies that's set to be delisted is controlled by the Supreme Leader Committee. Uh, it was designated in 2013. It's the uh, known as the e IKO, which is a, a group of companies, includes Ray Investment Company, Parsian Bank, uh, Carafin Bank, uh, Tadbir Group, uh, and their investment arm on the, which is the investment arm on the Tehran uh, Stock Exchange. This EIKO was originally listed in 2013 under Executive Order 13599, which was not a nuclear-related uh, sanction, but it was a sanction addressing deceptive financial practices and the risk that they pose to the integrity of the international financial system. Um, in 2013, the U.S. Treasury designated them, along with 37 subsidiaries, stating that um, they continued to generate and control massive off-the-books investments shielded from the view of the Iranian people and international regulators. So that happened in 2013. We've also talked about the amount of money that will be freed up to Iran. Uh, it's been characterized being between 100 billion to 150 billion. Secretary Liu spent some time at the hearing last week talking about how that number may be around 55, 56 billion dollars, not 100 to 150 billion. Um, but I guess I, I wanted to hear from you, Mr. Zarati. What, in your view, is the purpose of delisting these entities? And from from Reuters studies and others, we know that EIKO has 95 billion dollars worth of assets, and they're coming off of this list. Now, obviously, there may be some sanctions the U.S. will. Uh, maintain uh, to be in place against them directly, but $52 billion in real estate portfolio, $3.4 billion in publicly traded companies, uh, and, and more. So $95 billion, should that $95 billion that will be freed up, it looks like, be included in the 100 to $150 billion figure or the $56 billion figure that will be an impact to Iran's economy up front? Senator, you raise a great question because ICO, uh, EIKO, um, and other elements of the uh, first tranche of delisting after implementation day do present this risk and this challenge, which is uh, they may have had um, elements uh, and support dimensions to the nuclear program. Uh, some of them may have been uh, captured by some of the nuclear executive orders. But others had other problems attendant to them that were making them subject to these sanctions and these uh, other financial, what I call preventative measures, given the risks to the international financial system. And I think this is a, a fundamental challenge for how we've uh, constructed the unwinding, because in some ways we've given up on much of the underlying conduct that we've worried about in terms of what these entities, owned and controlled by the regime, very ele various elements, are able to do in the, the international financial system. And I think, uh, unfortunately, what I see as the sort of the, the blunt unwinding uh, tranches here is really part and parcel of what is stated as the intent of the JCPOA, which is the normalization of trade and uh, the economy with Iran. Now, I, I want this deal to work. I mean, I don't, I don't want to be sort of perceived as, as throwing stones at this, because this is incredibly hard, and the unwinding of the sanctions, which is the most comprehensive sanctions regime out there, is incredibly difficult. But I think what we've done with precisely the example you've described and others, Bank SEPA is another good example, 
is we've thrown them into the lot of unwinding without having the Iranians contend with the underlying conduct that is still a risk to the international financial system and our national security. And again, this is why I worry that, you know, viewed in maximalist terms, we've given Iran a get-out-of-jail-free card on some of these underlying issues. And again, I, I've been critical of even my own administration, our own actions when I was at the Treasury uh, and at, at the White House. Uh, what we did in 2005, 2006 to let up too early on our financial leverage against North Korea, not forcing the North Koreans to deal with the underlying conduct, uh, and stopping further financial and, and commercial isolation uh, on the back of a nuclear deal, that was a mistake. And I said so, and I've written about it, and I think it was a mistake at the time, and I, and I still think so. So I, I don't think we should repeat those mistakes and ignore the underlying conduct that still presents a real risk to our national security. And I, and I think uh, EIKO or ICO is they're, they're one of the businesses the Supreme Leader has under control through this group is uh, assets in Europe that include a German factory with advanced dual-use machinery that Iran needs for indigenous production of centrifuges. And under this lifting of the sanctions, they would be able to put money into that. Is that correct? That's right. And, and, and the other challenge is that given how we've defined not only the unwinding but nuclear-related sanctions, I put that in quotes, we've included elements of proliferation and dual use uh, and even missile uh, uh, trade that is still of concern and still is subject to other sanctions. And so we've in some ways ensconced and embedded in here a very broad definition of what we're calling nuclear sanctions, which then infects the rest of the implementation of the deal. Thank you, Mr. I need to go vote on the Energy Committee, so thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you very much. Senator Udall. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and I thank uh, both the witnesses for your testimony today. Um, let's assume the deal is approved. We go forward under the deal. What do you think the U.S. needs to do to ensure that the snapback option remains a legitimate threat to Iran for breaking the agreement? And how can we work with the P5 plus one to ensure we have international buy-in uh, for the use of these kinds of sanctions if needed? Well, Senator, uh, my, my view again remains that the context is important. And so I believe so long as we are insisting on very tough verification and interrogation of any incidents of even modest violations of the terms of the deal, and we respond to them very directly, both in the Joint Commission and dispute process, including through even potential uh, more modest uh, sanction snapback for those minor violations, that we can address the broader issue of snapback. Bottom line is the Iranians need to understand that we will respond at all times. And this starts by continuously monitoring the program, prompting and challenging them when we see things that are inconsistent with the terms of the deal or that causes questions, and vigorously using the dispute process that we've put in terms of the deal. We have to do that with high level of attention, and we need to do that with rigorous enforcement and monitoring. Mr. Cerati. Senator, I think Congress has a role to play here because I think Congress can put in place measures that makes it very clear, not just to the negotiating parties, but also the private sector, uh, that there are going to be sanctions and sanctions provisions that are potentially brought to bear uh, if there's evidence and suggestions of illicit uh, uh, Iranian activity. And so creating a, a sanctions framework where the Congress itself shapes the environment and shapes expectations around how the international community may view doing business with the IRGC or the Quds Force or the intelligence services. That actually, I think, would be incredibly helpful. 
This grandfathering provision, getting clarity on that, I think is really important and will shape the marketplace. And then, to Richard's point, enforcing uh, the elements of the, of the deal quickly and often and demonstrably, I think, will be critical. One, one of the things that I think your testimony here that I've heard this morning highlights is that there definitely is a role for Congress to play. You have the approval or disapproval of the agreement, but if you move forward under the agreement, the role for Congress to play in order to strengthen it, to bring transparency, to, to uh, plug holes that occur that we don't think are going to be there. Would you, would you agree with that? Absolutely. Whether or not you agree with the deal, I think Congress has a role to play in, in clarifying uh, the deal, maintaining our power, uh, and ensuring that it's executed properly to deal with the risks that are very real, deal or no deal. Is Mr. Neff, you feel Senator, I would agree as well. Yeah. The, there, uh, there have been concerns about what happens at, at year 10, year 15, year 20 uh, under the deal. What are your thoughts on these sunset provisions, and do you think the existence of a sunset is reason enough to reject the deal? Senator, I do not. I, I don't believe there is any arms control arrangement that is either possible or has been achieved thus far that does not include sunset. Even the original NPT included a sunset. Yeah. And we had to go and get it uh, extended permanently in the mid-90s only after demonstrating that it had been working for so long. So the idea that a country would voluntarily renounce its uh, nuclear program or nuclear activities in perpetuity I don't think was ever credible. I think one, one element of the sunset provision that's problematic and, and certainly doesn't match with the 15-year timetable and the presumption of uh, the peaceful nature of the Iranian uh, regime is the uh, cessation of Chapter 7 uh, obligations and scrutiny by the UN at year 10. Um, again, I, I'm a bit more skeptical and I think we should be presumptive of uh, ill intent on the part of the Iranians or at least uh, an intent to incrementally push the envelope in terms of what they're able to do in terms of an overt or covert uh, nuclear weapons program. So I think that in and of itself is problematic. To Richard's point, sunset provisions are a part of the international legal landscape. But I think in this case, we are dealing with a unique circumstance. We are dealing with high risk, and we are dealing with a suspect party that was subject to a number of Security Council resolutions that assumed uh, that they were a suspect party. Thank you both. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you very much. And uh, just uh, as a clarification, um, how would we um, appropriately understand the grandfather issue? In other words, uh, if we wanted clarification, I mean, as we uh, talk with people, we have, uh, you know, various opinions. And obviously, you know, this is in the, we're in the selling mode at this moment. Um, how would we best clarify that issue? I mean, what would be the responsible way for us to know um, what the true meaning of the grandfather quote uh, or non-grandfather clause means in advance of yeah. voting? It's, it's a great question. I thought about it a little bit, but perhaps not enough. So, you know, with that caveat, I'm going to think out loud a little bit, if that's okay, uh, Chairman uh, Corker. Um, one is Congress can sort of lay out what you think it is and have people sort of push back and, and, and reshape the definition. And so a letter from the Senate or, or this committee sort of proclaiming what it, it, it deems this to be actually has some impact and would force open reaction. Secondly, getting, um, asking for in writing uh, the interpretation from the various parties.
uh, to the agreement, in particular our, our allies. How do they interpret this deal and how are they going to enforce it? Uh, third, I would, I would uh, suggest that the Treasury Department is going to have to have a role in, in clarifying how the sanctions unwinding is going to play out. And so as part of that regulatory process, they're probably going to have to put out uh, interpretive notes or other uh, regulatory guidance. And so it's probably in that context that the administration is going to have to be incredibly clear, I hope, for the marketplace to then determine. So those are three ways that I can think of off the top of my head uh, that might help. Thank you. Thank you very much. Senator Isaacson. Well, thank you, Mr. Chairman. I appreciate the issues you and the ranking member have raised on the IAEA and Senator Menendez. I agree with you entirely and associated with your remarks. You know, I'm not a nuclear scientist and, and certainly not an expert in this subject. I was, however, a real estate broker in, for 33 years and negotiated a lot of deals. And I run for office 17 times. And you know, when you run for office, you get to a point where if you're in the final two, there's a front runner and there's a challenger. And I've been both at one time or another, but eventually the press wants to challenge both of you to a debate toward the end of the campaign. And so you appoint your best guy to go negotiate your position on the debate, and they appoint their best guy, and they negotiate whether you're sitting or standing, you know, whether you can talk in English or French, whatever, whatever it might be, whether you can have a prop or anything else. It appears to me that the Iranians negotiated a lot of wiggle room in this agreement for them to do a lot of nefarious things if they wanted to. And I think you made a, there's a paragraph in your testimony where it says Iran's problematic, the problematic construct of the, and Iran is a co-equal, which really illustrates what I'm talking about. As I understand, I want Mr. Zawarti, correct me if I'm wrong. If somebody challenges the Iranians to an inspection over a suspected violation of the agreement, they first of all can question and object, install any challenge that they want to. They can, they can interrogate the people making the request. They can object to the reimposition of sanctions. And they can appeal anything they want to to the Joint Commission, which they sit on. Is that, am I reading that correctly? Yes, sir. That's my reading as well. So not only is there a potential 24-day period of time to due diligence to get to an inspection by the IAEA, which will not, by contract, can't include an American inspector. But there's an additional way to do rope-a-dope for an extended period of time to keep from that inspection from taking place. Am I correct? Yes, Senator. And, and there have been uh, other experts who have done analysis, and, and certainly uh, Richard could comment on this as well, uh, as to how many days really that means. And it means more certainly than the 24 days, uh, given the potential for stall and the potential for challenge. And of course, uh, what's been negotiated in, in the letter of the JCPOA is the right of Iran to walk away. And so they get the ultimate, uh, what's been called the nuclear snapback uh, by my colleague Mark Dubowitz, what I call the heckler's veto, whatever you call it, they get sort of the ultimate sanction here, which is they get to start a nuclear program if they don't like it. Well, Senator Perdue, when he read the opening, part of the opening preamble to the agreement where the Iranians say they will not develop a nuclear weapon, but from the day the JPOA is signed, there's a glide path for them to eventually get to the position where they can. It may be as long as 15 years in the most strict interpretation or eight and a half in the most liberal interpretation. But either way, you take that combined with the wiggle room they've negotiated with the Joint Commission where you can make the appeal or other things, give them a glide path to being able to have a nuclear weapon. Which is why when the chairman asked the question yesterday about is there an alternative to agreeing to the deal or, or war, 
There should be, because we, we need to reclaim some of the equality we ought to have in standing in this, in this agreement once it's signed along the way, because there will be bumps and bruises. The Iranians have negotiated a lot of excellent little rat holes for them to run into if something pops up, but we're pretty much exposed. And I want to just call everybody's attention to one other thing Mr. Zwarte put in his testimony, and that's paragraph 29 of the preface of the entire agreement where it says the EU and its member states and the United States of America consistent with their respective laws will refrain from any policy specifically intended to directly and adversely affect the normalization of trade and economic relations with the Iranian in, with Iran inconsistent with their commitments not to undermine the successful implementation of the JCPOA. So it looks like from the beginning there's a speed bump for all of us to be able to have any snapback, reimposition of sanctions, or any other economic tool that we might want to use if we suspect that the Iranians violated the agreement. Is that correct? That's right, Senator. And the reason I highlight that, that uh, paragraph, I think it's essential because it uh, reinforces and illuminates what the intent of the deal is for Iran, which makes sense. They want reintegration into the international financial and global order. What I'm arguing, though, and it's important, is that the reason these sanctions have been so darn effective post 9-11, uh, a, a regime that's been subject to sanctions for three decades, has come to the table. Why? Because they were unplugged from the global financial and commercial system. We, we messed with, we interfered, we interrupted their very trade and economy. My point is, if we want to preserve that power moving forward for terrorism, human rights, support to Assad, proliferation, and the rest, we may have just negotiated away the effective use of those kinds of measures. And that was the point of, of that portion of my testimony. Well, that, that was my point because the, what, we all know what got them to the table to negotiate with us was not that they liked us or they respected us, but that we were squeezing them. And they were, they were calling uncle. And when they got to the table to negotiate from day one, the construct of it brought them up to be a co-equal with the United States when in fact it was our power and leverage that brought them there in the first place. And that's what concerns me so much about the way in which negotiation ended up. We've raised and elevated their stature and their position and given them various windows along the way to be able to violate exactly what they promised in the preamble, which is not develop a nuclear weapon. Thank you very much for your tip to both of you, and thank you very much. Thank you, Senator. Senator Shane. Am I, am I out of order? Uh, Y'all can politely John? decide. No, go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Senator. Thank you, Senator Sheen. Thank you, Mr. Chair, and thanks to the witnesses. And Mr. Zarate, since I last saw you, I've enjoyed, I haven't finished reading Treasury's War, but I've enjoyed reading it. And I would commend all to read a, a book that he's written about the really um, significant advance in how Treasury has been an implement of our foreign policy with sanctions and applying them the right way. A wonderful book. Thank you very um, much, Senator. I appreciate that. Three points. So. I agree with the comment that Senator Menendez made and following up on the chair and the ranking about IAEA and the needing to dig more into their situation, whether it be, you know, agreements they may have with Iran as they do with other NPT members or just to get comfort level with how they inspect. But I don't want to leave this room with an unstated, uh, in, what I, I think would be an inaccurate impression that we don't trust the IAEA or they don't know what they're doing. Um, if I can, uh, just, you know, to remind everybody of a painful history. In March of 2003, the IAEA issued an opinion that they said, to date, the IAEA has found no evidence or plausible indication 
of the revival of a nuclear weapons program in Iraq. That was in March of 2003. The administration at that time immediately jumped out, trashed the IAEA, said they were wrong, and said that the United States needed to initiate a war that has proven highly costly in American lives, in treasure, in instability in the region. Because the administration said, no, we have better intel. They do have a program of weapons of mass destruction and nuclear weapons. We need to worry about the mushroom cloud and we need to begin this war because they won't disarm. The IAEA was right. The United States was wrong. And there was a significant generation-altering consequence of that. So I, I completely get the notion that we want to dig into what the IAEA is going to do on this. I don't want to leave this room with the impression that the IAEA is, hasn't demonstrated their chops. The IAEA hadn't been perfect either. Um, there were weaknesses in the North Korean negotiation, especially with respect to North Korean covert programs. But the IAEA and the international community went back to add the additional protocol that Iran is obligated under the deal to ratify in year eight to fix challenges. So let's not leave the impression that the IAEA doesn't know what they're doing because in one of the most critical decisions that we have made as a nation in our foreign policy history, we trashed their conclusions, they were right, we were wrong, and a war that should never have been started, that's an editorial opinion, was the result. Would, would the Senator yield just very yep. briefly? I, I don't want you to think, I don't know if you're referring to my comments. No, no uh, actually not you, Okay, Senator. fine, because yeah. I, I, I agree, except that I want to know what they're going to do and do they have the wherewithal financially and otherwise? I, I agree, and actually your point, very, very good. The agreement says they will put between 130 and 150 inspectors into Iran to carry out the inspections. They have the financial ability to do that. I think that's critical. But I just, there's an, I was worried that there was an unstated point uh, and I wanted to clarify that. Um, I, th I think you've both hinted at this, but I want to just ask your opinion on this statement. I was, I was intrigued. I was going back as part of understanding this deal, trying to understand the status quo ante before negotiations started in November of 2013 or before the public phase of the uh, JPOA began. And I went back and looked at the speech that Prime Minister Netanyahu gave to the UN in September of 2012. And he had a quote that I thought was interesting. Seven years of international sanctions have hurt Iran's economy, but let's be honest, they've not stopped Iran's nuclear program. Um, I think the evidence suggests that the sanctions have been incredibly effective in hurting Iran's economy and getting them to the table to negotiate. Certainly the congressional sanctions have been at the core of it, but also the international sanctions and the compliance of all allies in that. However, I think the Prime Minister was honest, and I think as you look at the data, it would suggest that the sanctions did not stop Iran's nuclear development. In, in some way, because of a resistance mentality or a defiance mentality, the sanctions may have accelerated centrifuge development to 19,000 enriched uranium development to 11 or 12,000 kg, the enrichment level to 20%, the process on the Iraq plutonium reactor. But I, I was just curious, do you share that opinion? Um, did, did sanctions slow down Iran's nuclear program? 
Senator, I would say that sanctions did have an impact in terms of Iranian supply and procurement efforts, and, and, and it, it caused difficulties. But I think your point is exactly right. If you look at to the end of 2011, Iran had about 9,000 installed centrifuges. At the end of 2013, they had 20,000 installed centrifuges. And this is while our sanctions were as intense as they possibly could have been, um, given oil prices and so forth. My view is that sanctions were always a means to an end, and the end was a diplomatic outcome that probably wasn't the end of the Iranian nuclear program, but was putting it under significant restraints and very aggressive monitoring. Mr. Zarate. Senator, again, thank you for your kind remarks. Um, I, think, I think you're right. I don't think sanctions uh, was a silver bullet here, was ever going to be a silver, silver bullet. Um, I've argued that we've needed multiple points of leverage, and I think it's important to keep in mind that sanctions have multiple purposes. Uh, to Richard's point, uh, they can you throw sand in the gears uh, of what a country is trying to do or a transnational organization. It can help deter actors uh, willing to, to act with uh, sanctioned parties. Uh, and it can ultimately, hopefully, change behavior and policy. Uh, and I think the reality is, um, you know, the Iranians were brought to the table because of the sanctions, but they were also facing the reality of internal economic mismanagement, demographics that were not uh, conducive to regime stability, and I would argue the ghosts of the Green Movement, even though that they were able to uh, crush it uh, in its infancy, the very uh, threat to the regime of internal instability in combination with that external pressure, I think is really what drove President Rouhani and his team back to the table. And so you're absolutely right. Sanctions alone wasn't going to do it, uh, but sanctions were a necessary element to getting them to the table. The reason I ask about your thoughts about the Prime Minister's statement is you know, this is a risk analysis and a very complicated one where every option has both some predictable upsides and downsides and then some unpredictable upsides and downsides. And one of the, I think, alternatives we have to contemplate is if, if we walk away from a deal and we think that reimposing sanctions, now assuming we can get the international partners to completely go along, and I think that's a big assumption, but reimposing sanctions, getting everybody to go along, is going to lead to a better deal, it could lead to a better deal. It could also lead to this, the same kind of acceleration. I think in that same speech, the Prime Minister said, you know, they're just months away from crossing the nuclear threshold. Now the critique is in 15 years, they could be months away from crossing the nuclear threshold. I think even some of the critics' critique of the deal acknowledge that the deal has moved the needle. But sanctions could get us a better deal. They could. Sanctions could also lead to an acceleration of an Iranian nuclear program that could put us in a worse position. And, and actually, we might have different, we might assign different percentages to that, but we're dealing with, again, some upside risks and downside risks, and some are known and some are unknown, and this is a very complicated analysis for that reason. Thank, thank you, and thank you, Mr. Chair. Thank you, and thanks for that line of questioning. Just to uh, further clarify the IAEA situation, I think all of us reach out and talk to former people nonstop to get a comparison between the inspection regime that is going to take place in, in Iran versus the ones that have taken place in other places. I know the Secretary of State mentioned this is by far the best we've ever had. I think most people dispute that, that the one you're talking about in Iraq was actually the a much better inspection regime, much better. And uh, I know the other day in his testimony, he tried to, well, 
he twisted it around. I don't know if that's what he was trying to do to indicate that we had a lot of eyes on the ground when we invaded. That's not what I was talking about. It's back in that 2003 time frame. And the ability to go anywhere, anyplace was much better with Iraq uh, than exists with this. And I think that's all the more reason that we need to, uh, to get them in to, uh, to understand. Or at least, let me say this, the elements we know thus far about Parchin Mm -hmm. certainly is much better. And the anywhere, anytime inspection that's been alluded to that could be 24 days, it could be 74 days, um, is very different than what we had in Iraq. It, so. And if I could just, you're absolutely right, but we purchased those better inspections with a war. <laughs> we, got the, we got the significant inspections of Iraq as a result of Gulf War I. So I don't want to have to go to war to get a slightly better inspections regime. I want this regime to be as strong as it can be. Yeah, I, I don't know. I'm having a, that's sort of a non sequitur to me, but uh, but I, I got it. Uh, so, Senator Rubio. Thank you. I actually want to continue at that point because the, the choice right before us was two things. The, on the one hand was to continue with what we thought was the <coughs> strategy, which is this international sanctions that had an impact on Iran's economy. They continued to make progress in their enrichment capabilities and so forth, but it was the combination of international sanctions and the threat of credible military force, which no one wants to talk about, but that was on the table. I mean, the president has said that, that in fact, if it came down to it, the U.S. would do that uh, if it were necessary, versus what we have now, which is a deal that basically argues, well, what this will do is that if they comply with it, it'll slow them down, and in 10 years, if they want to break out, uh, it buys us 10 years of time, uh, and it avoids the assuming everybody complies with everything. Here's my problem with that analysis. My problem with it is, that in eight to 10 years, which sounds like a long time to all of us here, it's nothing. 10 years is, goes very quickly, and, and that's if we're optimistic. In 10 years, Iran will be in a much stronger position. In fact, I think in 10 years, they'll be immune from international pressure compared to where they are today, and here's why. First of all, they are going to use the sanctions relief and the billions of dollars that it frees up, and they're going to, they're, I know everybody wants to believe they're gonna invest it in hospitals and roads and social services in order to win their next election. I promise you they're gonna win their next election. Um, they're, uh, <laughs> they're not, I don't think they're worried about that as much as they are about their need, for example. They're gonna to get to modernize their enrichment capability into a 21st century industrial uh, system. Uh, it actually falls right in line with the mandate that the Supreme Leader, I believe, gave during the negotiators, which is don't agree to anything that's irreversible. But do anything, go, go as far as you need to go to get the sanctions removed, but don't agree to anything that's irreversible. So they'll have less centrifuges, but they'll be better ones, and they'll be modernized, and they'll can retain that infrastructure, which is the hardest part of any nuclear program, is the infrastructure, the hardware that it takes to do this. But here's what else they're going to continue to do. They're going to continue to build their conventional capabilities. We don't think about that enough, but Iran in 10 years will have conventional capabilities, maybe less, that could potentially drive us out of the Persian, uh, out of the Persian Gulf and the Straits of Hormuz because the price of being there will be too high. I mean, they can buy Chinese asymmetrical capabilities that allow them to kill ships, uh, add to these uh, fast, swift boat uh, pro uh, things that they've been able to come up with that could threaten an aircraft carrier. They're going to continue to build long-range rockets. Why are you building a long-range rocket, an ICBM? Are they going to put a man on the moon? No. They're building it for purposes of targeting the continental United States. And they look at North Korea and say, yeah, the North Koreans have a long-range rocket. We don't know where it's going to hit because they're not very good yet at guidance, but it'll hit somewhere. 
uh, like the east west coast of the United States, that alone has made North Korea immune. And they're going to continue to build up their surrogates in the region, which I would argue already, even now, before the sanctions relief, has given Iran tremendous leverage over U.S. policy. As an example, if the, if the Iran has laid out some pretty clear red lines. They are going to hold back the Shia militia in Iraq from attacking American troops or going after Americans. They will agree to hold them back if we don't cross certain red lines that they've made very clear. What are their red lines? For starters, they don't want to see any U.S. combat troops in Iraq. And if we make any move towards any sort of permanent presence in Iraq in the future, we're going to get attacked by Shia militias at their orders. Uh, they don't want to see us take any concrete steps to remove Assad from power. If they see us moving towards getting Assad out of power, we're going to get hit by their, by their surrogate groups in the region, including Hezbollah and the Shia militia. If we take steps to try to help put in place an Iraqi government that actually unifies that country and isn't a puppet of, Iraq, of Iran, not to mention one that may actually be hostile towards Iran's ambitions in the region, they're going to attack us. So they already have leverage over our policy. Now extrapolate that eight to ten years from now when their conventional forces are higher, when these groups are better armed, when Hezbollah in a couple of years doesn't just have rockets, they have guided rockets, guided missiles that don't just hit somewhere in Israel, hit exactly what they want to hit. So imagine a world in 10 years where Iran decides, or eight years or 12 years, where they just decide, you know what, we're building a nuclear weapon because we believe Israel has one or because we think someone else is gonna threaten us. What can the world do then? Well then, then, Reimposing sanctions really won't be an option at that point because all these, all these uh, companies that are deeply invested in that economy just won't let their, their nations, their governments do anything about it. We've already seen that in the case of the Europeans. But what will the price be of actually going after their systems? It'll be worse than the price of going after North Korea now. Do we have a credible military option today to target the North Korean uh, program? We do not. We do not, because we know that the price of going after the North Korean program through a credible military option, the price of that is Tokyo, the price of that is Seoul, the price of that is Hawaii, they'll hit us back. Well, imagine Iran where the price of going after the Iranian program in 10 years, if they decide to break out, will be Washington, D.C., or New York City, not to mention Tel Aviv and Jerusalem and, and any number of places in, in the region that are our allies. So my argument is that, in fact, what I think we've done here is walked right into the situation they wanted to lay out. They didn't want a nuclear weapon next week anyway. But we have created a system where in eight to ten years, they will, be, they will have the capability to quickly become, walk into the nuclear weapons club, not sneak in, walk into the nuclear weapons club with a world-class industrial enrichment capability, a much more powerful conventional uh, force capable of actually asymmetrically driving our Navy from the region or further out, and quite frankly, immune from any sort of credible military action, because if we attack them, the price is going to be a nuclear devastating strike, potentially even on the, on the, on the, um, on the uh, continental United States. So my point is that when people vote on this deal in a few weeks, you're going to live for this for the rest of your life. In 10 years, in 12 years, when Iran has a nuclear weapon and we can't target them, People are going to remember this vote that's coming up in this deal as what laid the groundwork for it. And I keep hearing this notion that there's no other alternative and no other way forward. I, I disagree. I believe U.S. sanctions are the most important part of all the sanctions. I believe that you know, these uh, banks in Europe, German banks, whatever banks may be, if they were forced to choose between having access to the American economy and access to the Iranian economy, that's not going to be a hard choice for them. I know there's not a question embedded in any of this. Uh, other than, I guess, Mr. Zarati, in the 30 seconds I have left, I would ask you, uh, do you have any doubt 
that when the sanctions are removed and the billions of dollars flow in, that a significant percentage of that money will be used for the things I've just outlined, to develop long-range rockets, to develop their conventional capabilities, and to better equip their surrogate groups in the region. Senator, I don't know what the percentage is going to be, but this is a regime that's already investing in those capabilities, has already increased its budget allocation for the IRGC, the Quds Force, and other elements of its security infrastructure. Uh, and there's no doubt in my mind that they're going to uh, use some of the relief and the actual flow of capital uh, to support their proxies, as I said in my testimony, from the Golan to Yemen. So there's no, no doubt in my mind. I don't know what the percentage is going to be, uh, but it's going to be significant. Thank you. I don't have additional questions, but I think other members may, and we'd be glad to, to entertain those for a moment. I, I, don't, I don't want to let the war thing hang, though. I, I hope you are not trying to indicate that there are some of us who would like to see a war. No, no, no. Actually, let, yeah, let me be real clear what I meant about that. You are, Mr. Chair, if you don't mind, you are absolutely right. The inspections in Iraq were the, were the gold standard, and this, this deal is not at that level. But the, but the inspections in Iraq flowed from our winning Gulf War I. So there was a war, yeah. we won, and then it set a pattern of an inspections regime in Iraq that we then used the intel from the inspections to bomb Iraq in the late 90s. But, but, it, but it, yeah. the, there was yeah. a war that led Got to it. this super comprehensive inspections yeah. regime. It's not a comment yeah. upon what anybody no, I, I don't think anybody we all want the same thing. in that. I, will, yeah. I would say, just in, in response, that I think we all know the, from the meetings that we have that, uh, that Iran has never thought the, the threat of force was real in recent times. And I might say, and, and by the, I hope we don't get to that, and I think that's what us, we're all trying to assess right now, is this an agreement that keeps us from that. But I might say because they've never thought that to be a threat, maybe that's the reason they've purchased something that is, you know, certainly uh, at a minimum not near as good as what we've had in the past, maybe. But uh, Senator Shaheen. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. When I passed to Senator Kane, it wasn't because I didn't have questions. It was because he was first. And having started out at the end of the row here, I appreciate how challenging it is when somebody comes in with more seniority and bumps your test questioning. So um, thank you both for being here. And Senator Rubio presented a fairly stark doomsday scenario in his um, time. And I, I just want to go back and see if I can clarify a couple of things with respect to what he said. First of all, um, does this agreement in any way um, affect our ability to take any military action in Iran should we choose to do so? Mr. Nephew. Senator, no, it does not. Mr. Zawadeh, do you agree with that? I do, Senator. And are you both in agreement with what I understand to be the intelligence assessments that today, before we enter into this agreement, that Iran is two to three months away from breakout to build a nuclear weapon should they choose to do that. Mr. Nephew. Senator, that's my understanding, two to three months. Mr. Zwart. Senator, I haven't seen the recent estimates, but that's my general understanding based on what's been published. And it's also my understanding, again, based on um, estimates that I have seen that should we enter into this agreement at the end of the 10-year time period that Iran will be between 8 and 12 months away from building a nuclear weapon. Is that your understanding? 
Yes, Senator, that's my understanding. Mr. Jordan. Yes, Senator, but at the end of the restrictions can quickly shrink that timetable back to you know, two months or, or even sooner. And, and they won't be able to shrink that timetable because they already have an, an enrichment program and they have um, built or in the process of building a plutonium um, program at the Iraq uh, site because of the work that they are doing right now, not because of what they're going to be able to do over the next 10-year time period. Is that your understanding? That is, but it's also the, the case that they were, are likely going to be able to accelerate their activities given the modernization, um, in particular around the centrifuge uh, program and the enrichment. Um, that's actually not my understanding based on the testimony from Secretary Moniz, but Mr. Nephew? Yeah, Senator, my understanding is that from years 10 to 15, the Iranians are still going to be constrained with respect to their research and development activities, as well as the uranium stockpile. And furthermore, the Iraq plutonium path is going to be even more closed down since they can't right. do any of that. So my understanding is that as of year 15, we're still going to be in that six to eight month kind of time frame for uranium breakout, but we're going to be years and years away from a plutonium-based bomb. Yeah, and you agree with that, Mr. Zorro. Right, I was referring to the uranium enrichment, not the plutonium okay. capabilities. Um, so I, I want to go back and, and see if I can understand. There has been some suggestion that one of the challenges with relying on the IAEA is that the U.S. wouldn't have inspectors on the ground as part of those activities. Are there um, other agreements that we have entered into where we have inspectors on the ground, and can you describe those, Mr. Nephew? So I, I am aware of some things like, for instance, bilateral arms control efforts with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. You know, had um, inspectors from the United States, and the Soviet inspectors would come here. And then, when it became Russia, obviously Russians. Um, but but again, there were restrictions and constraints placed upon those inspections because there are national security interests that are involved there. From the Iranian perspective, my understanding is that they have concerns with Americans tromping around their military sites, and I think from their perspective, there is some reason to be concerned. But I don't think that should imply we won't have access to information from those inspections. The IEA will be asked to provide reports and information both to the members of the P5 plus one, of which we are one, and the IEA Board of Governors, of which we are one. And with respect to our activities in Russia, which is, if, since you gave that example, and with respect to um, Iran, we will also continue to have intelligence assessments about activities going on there, is that correct? Absolutely, I think it'll be still one of the most watched targets in the U.S. intelligence community. Thank you. Um, I wanna go now to the sanctions question because you all have testified, and I think I've heard this at every um, hearing that I've been in, uh, that it's more likely that if, a, if we agree to the negotiated, the JCPOA, that Iran would most likely violate that in an incremental way rather than in a flagrant way. And that therefore, as you testified, Mr. Nephew, that um, the situational challenge will be how do we respond to that um, and how do we get the international community to go along with us in our response. And so, you, all, you both mentioned several other incremental options with respect to sanctions and other disincentives that we could engage in with Iran. And I wonder if I could get you to 
to talk a little bit more about that. Um, so, Mr. Nephew, do you want to start, and then Mr. Zuarte? Um, sure. Sure. So, I, I believe at the base principles, we still have the ability to impose um, sanctions with respect to particular bad conduct. Now, the the terms of the deal require us to go through this dispute process to engage Iran on the terms of its violation. If it is a valve that's out of place, we may not wish to impose draconian sanctions for that or sanctions at all. Instead, there may be other restrictions that are imposed on Iran as a result of that violation. Like what? Can you give some? Additional monitoring, for instance. If, if a valve is found out of place, then it might be because the monitoring regime is not sufficient. So in my opinion, you can use the dispute process to tailor further the deal to make sure you don't have those problems in the future. But overall, if you have violation upon violation, it, it's, it's ticky-tack, and there are lots of little ones that add up. Frankly, then you can go down the path of Iran is trying to systematically undermine the deal, which may push you in a direction of more aggressive sanctions response options. And Mr. Zwarte. Uh, Senator, I, I think there, there are a variety of things that you could do. Certainly unilaterally, you could impose different types of sanctions. If, there, if the snapback had uh, an element of uh, tailored snapback as opposed to blunt uh, snapback, potentially that's one way of dealing with relatively minor yet material infractions. I think the bigger question is going to be systematically how infractions are viewed. Will they be viewed as Iran really trying to cheat? Mm -hmm. Or is it simply kind of uh, Iran being Iran, pushing the envelope? Uh, and I think that's going to be the biggest challenge, because I think those who don't want the deal to fail, and certainly may have commercial interests, et cetera, will make the assumption that these are uh, forgivable offenses. Those that are more suspicious of Iran, obviously, will see these as, a, as just the tip of the iceberg reflecting what Iran may or may not be doing covertly, for example. So I think how all those delicts and, and infractions are viewed actually in toto becomes really important. Okay, so if, if you were going to divide, I'm, can I continue? Sure. Um, if you were going to, my time is You've expired. You've already had so. such an impact on things with the uh, intel briefing. We need to let you go as all right, long as good. you can, so thank you. Um, so if you were going to divide the P5 plus one, so the negotiators who are party to this agreement, would you put certain of them in one camp, people who think um, Iran is looking to violate the deal, and people who think, well, they, well, we want to give them some slack on these things? And how would you divide that out? And, and then what, what options would we have as we're looking at those partners in negotiation to try and um, bring them around to our point of view? Well, I mean, Senator, I think I would say this. I think every party to the P5 plus one um, wants to see the deal work. And I think that they would treat any violation as being a potentially serious one. Now, if, if on, the, on the one hand, if it's a valve issue, we will probably react more seriously to that than, for instance, Russia would. But I think a real, very substantial, significant violation of the deal would be as big a problem for the Russians and the Chinese as it would be for the P5 plus one. I think ultimately, again, it'll come down to the context of the violation and what we're suggesting in response. If we are able to be proportional and reasonable and serious about how we're handling this, I, I think the P5 plus one will stay together. Do you agree? Senator, I, I, I have a slightly different view, in part because I think there's a, there's a question of how uh, the nuclear program and Iran is viewed uh, in the context of the negotiation. And, and Richard's right, everyone wants the deal to work. But then there are other geopolitical factors that I think create gradations among the negotiating parties. And, and one of the gradations is actually how willing the parties are to, to allow sanctions to be used effectively, is the way I would put it. And I would put China and Russia in a camp 
where they certainly do not want to see the effective use of sanctions uh, wantonly, uh, and they certainly don't want uh, to encourage the U.S. to use these powers effectively. And I think that's a real challenge in terms of the sanction framework. I think uh, we on the other. Excuse me for interrupting, yeah. but on the other hand, um, they have been effectively working with the U.S. in terms of imposing those sanctions on Iran. Is that not the case? Yes, because they've had to. Um, in many ways, they've had to, not only because of UN Chapter 7 obligations, but also because of the market implications. Uh, Sasada and the, the rest of the regime uh, imposed by uh, the U.S. government uh, has really forced the choice. Are, are, are you going to do business in the U.S. or are you going to do business in Iran? Right. And I think that choice has been fairly stark for most market actors, to include Russian and Chinese actors. Thank you both very much. Thank you. Um, are we good? Yeah, sure. I, I, I do want to say we, we, because of the Chinese relations, we, we did grant some significant flexibilities to them. So to say that they have held firm to this would be a little bit of an exaggeration because we, they were not going to hold firm, so we granted them some flexibilities. But uh, with Ru Russia, maybe so. Uh, Senator Menendez. Just a quick uh, question uh, and a comment. If it's true that sanctions did not uh, stop Iran's nuclear program, and neither does this negotiated agreement. It may delay it, but it doesn't stop it. So let's look at what standard we're trying to look at in terms of judging. I have a concern that uh, people uh, think of snackback as an instantaneous reality. Uh, and yet, in page six of your testimony, talking about how we got to the point uh, you say, this approach took time, patience, and coordination within the U.S. government with allies. It would not be a financial shock in our campaign using a series of coordinated steps to isolate key elements of the Iranian economy, starting with banks, shipping, insurance, and finally its all sector. So my question is, how instantaneous is, assuming we have all the laws in place, which is uh, still a big question for me, how instantaneous is snapback? in terms of both its actual, you have to give notice to the world and to companies, right, that you're now in violated space, in sanctioned space. We used to give people at least six months notice of that. I'm trying to, you know, this idea that it's instantaneous, give me a sense of that. It's a great question, Senator, because I think there are two, two different answers. One is the mechanics. You're absolutely right that the, the, the implementation of a snapback would have legal and mechanical uh, implications and you'd have to allow for contracts to be unwound, investments to be uh, you know, re rejiggered and moved, et cetera. So there are mechanics of that that will take months, potentially. Um, the second part, which is perhaps the most important, is as we get further along in the implementation of this deal and the erosion of the sanctions architecture, you begin to lose the ability to affect the marketplace and its risk aversion to doing business with Iran. And so that would take even longer to reinstitute, uh, even though the snapback would certainly help. And I think uh, that would depend on enforcement, that would depend on expansion of sanctions lists, that would depend on a whole set of other uh, measures. Uh, with the market understanding that, uh, that Iran is being not only punished for its violations, but also being isolated from elements of the, of the financial and, and commercial system. That in some ways would be in violation of the current reading of the JCPOA, which is in part why I have such grave concerns. But in any event, I think those are the two elements that do add delay to any snapback. 
Senator, I, I generally agree, I think, with Juan that instantaneous is, is not going to be how this works. And I think, Senator, you're absolutely right. There's going to be some wind-up period to the sanctions immediate effect. But I think some of this is going to be in the dispute resolution process. I don't anticipate that the dispute process is itself going to be a secret. I, I think there is going to be publicity about there being violations. And certainly when a Security Council uh, 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 you know, consideration and consultation begins, there's going to be attention paid to this. To my mind, that is part of the warning time and the preparation time that companies and banks and businesses are going to have to build into their snapback calculations. Um, they will see this coming, and that 30, 50, 60, 80 days of period is a lot of time for them to start preparing for response to snapback. Now, that doesn't mean that on day 80, I think you're going to have zero economic activity with Iran, but it does mean I don't think that it's three months plus six months. I, I think that if there is a six-month wind-up period, some of that is in the process. The second point I would just make in, in reaction to Juan's comment, I, I think it's true that over time, the market is going to normalize its expectations of Iran, but I think it's going to be a much longer time than we might have in mind because our secondary sanctions are still in effect. And so banks and companies are still going to have to be screening against the Treasury Department's SDN list. They're still going to be having to do their due diligence, and they're still going to be having to treat Iran as different, because otherwise they run the risk of being cut off from the United States. Thank you. My, my, my point, Mr. Chairman, uh, is as we're calculating here, uh, this sense of instantaneousness, there's going to be months involved, sure. under any set of circumstances, months involved, which means that you know, this whole breakout period, months involved, to have an effect before you try to move the Iranians into changing their course if they're violating, is a lot less. Mm -hmm. So when you take the totality of the consideration, even in a case of snapback, uh, you're talking about a limited window in the future, and, and, and that has a real consequences to judgment at the end of the day. Thank you. Thank you. Well, certainly uh, between yourself and the two people at the table, uh, there's a vast amount of experience in how long it takes for these things to kick in, no question. And uh, I want to thank our witnesses. It's been an outstanding hearing. Um, we're going to leave the record open uh, for questions, if it's okay, through close of business Monday and hope that you would respond. But uh, we thank you both for your service to our country. Uh, it's been an important service. We thank you for being here today. and. Uh, again, uh, it's been an outstanding hearing. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thanks, Thanks for your leadership. We're adjourned.